seven years, I have dreamt of getting my paws on Ric Flair. Douglas, you made a lifetime out of trying to be me. The franchise just wiped out the Nature Boy with a bat. You have been franchised, Nature Boy. This is personal. I am the Batman. Promise me, you interfere in the match. I get you for five minutes. I am going to show you what it's like to walk around with your humanity stripped. Just like I have, Sting. Right now, I feel like rumping something. Green darkness. Coming to my world, boy. The hunter has become the hunted. Hulk Hogan is the biggest egomaniac of them all. Who in the do you think you are, kid? Free Market Champion 3 and Hulk Hogan 0. Do you hear it? It's the sound of your career coming to an end, brother. Terry Bollea on a mission is what it is here. Guess who the special referee is? Moi! Me! Brother! David Arquette won the world title! I don't deserve to be the world heavyweight champion. No kidding. I'm gonna put it up for grabs to DDP and Jeff Jarrett in the three-cage match. Who died made your commissioner, Slappy? Your skinny little rear end is gonna be in a ring. It's a triple dance. And now, Western Union. The fastest witness in money worldwide presents Slamboree. The people who held the WCW World Heavyweight title in the year 2000. Uh, do you know who was uh, who was champion at the turn of the year? Um, 2000. You need to see this. I'm going to go with Hillary Swank. Uh, <laughs> no, she lost a triple threat. Between Hillary Swank, Meryl Streep, and Bret Hart. Ah. Yeah, because he was the champion, and then obviously Goldberg happened. Bret is never injured another competitor in the ring, including Hillary Swank and Meryl Streep. Yeah. <laughs> you imagine Hillary? You imagine both of them taking a sharpshooter? Have it, Streep. Iron Lady, my ass. Fucking have that, <laughs> wrenching it in. <laughs> Yes, indeed, it is the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler, and today we take a deep dive into the murky waters of peak tailspin WCW in the year 2000. To accompany me through the next couple of hours is the ever-present, ever-vescent old man, Sam Carey. Sam, how are you? I'm very good, Ben. I'm excited to be here. Very excited to be here. A little too excited to be here. So I may mess me pants a bit later on, but we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see what happens. Okay, well, you just you just contain yourself because we don't want anything disrupting the flow of the podcast. Like, for example, having to record the intro for a second time because someone forgot to press record before we began. Well, fortunately, we're all professionals, so that would never happen. <laughs> However, we're, we're, we're not professional enough that I won't absolutely ruin myself before the end of this episode. Well, look forward to that, view, uh, viewers, <laughs> listeners. Um, and, <laughs> and also along for the ride is the always here musketeer, Tom Smith. Uh, French men with swords. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, like 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 the musketeers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Anyone remember Dog Tanyon? The, uh, yes. The animated... I bet you love Dog Tanyon. <laughs> it's really funny because I had a conversation with someone very recently about Dog Tanyon. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what happened to that though. 
God, these references are so insider. They could come from WCW circa 2000. It's, like, it's crazy. Um, yeah, so cards on the table. We did try and record once. And as I said, somebody, no, naming no names, forgot to press the record Tinky. button. It was Tinky. We've he's let record- himself down and he's let me and Tom down. And we're going to flagellate him later. So we've already recorded the first 20 minutes of the show once. So apologies if we appear to be uh, saying things that don't make sense or indeed um, or indeed uh, seem to be rushing through the first match because we did get to the end of that almost. So guys, yeah, uh, WCW Slamboree, we are here to uh, listen uh, listen to. We're here to talk about WCW Slamboree 2000. Before we get going properly here, just a quick nudge in the direction of our social media channels. We can be found on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at UK. And thanks to all of those people already engaging with us on those channels. It's great to hear your thoughts and comments on the show. So, guys, let's talk about our expectations for WCW Slamboree 2000. Um, old man, let's start with you. What were your expectations going in? Well, they were very high, to be honest. And this kind of plays into the pant messing that I mentioned earlier. So this is obviously an era of WCW, not long before they uh, they get bought by old Vinnie Mac. And uh, it's obviously steeped in folklore for its horrendous booking, nonsensical bollocks. And I've never seen any of it. And I couldn't bloody wait. <laughs> and I approached it like a child would approach Mr. Blobby at a birthday party. I'm excited and I'm all in. But I know it's going to end horribly and probably in a bit of a bloody mess. A bloody mess? Yeah, well, no, bloody as in the uh, shut up. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) And that is that is at least the third. That is at least the third reference of Mr. Blobby. I think we've had on this podcast already. And I think the latest in a long line of legendary uh, analogies that you have made ahead of shows for this podcast. Yes. And uh, Tom, your thought, your expectations going in? Very low, to be perfectly honest, because as I wasn't watching WCW at the time, and there's quite a clear uh, indication that not many people were, and there was quite likely a reason for it. However, after I'd worked my way through the absolute detritus that is the WWE Network app on Apple TV, which they need to sort out, I'm sure other listeners out there who use it could feel my pain, uh, I finally found it, Slambury 2000, it was a bit tentative, and then I saw the front cover, and it was Buff Bagwell. And I thought to myself, here we go. Here we go. Now we're settled in, my boy, Buff Bagwell. So I then felt a bit more excited about it because I was hoping to see him blow a raspberry at some point on the show, such as he did at No uh, Sold Out. I know he said No Doubt then, like no he doubt. did in No Doubt 2007 or 1997. <laughs> you shouldn't get overexcited by posters, as we established last week when you were expecting the Wyatt family for WWE Payback 2016 and they didn't appear anywhere on the show. They couldn't do it to me twice in a row, though. It'd be well, a cruel and unusual punishment. A bit like watching Slambridge Basin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. So the show itself starts with footage from Thunder and a battle royal for the number one contendership to the world title, which includes a number of members from the Millionaires Club and from the New Blood, which we will talk about in some depth, I'm sure, as the show goes on. And Ric Flair wins the match. And that whole battle royal and what happened on Thunder... Uh, relates to absolutely nothing on this show. So goodness knows why they put it at the top of the show. Uh, anyone have any idea why they thought this would be a good idea? Could you imagine the thought process being like, uh, if say you're watching Line of Duty, which I think a lot of people are at the moment, although by the time this show airs, it would have finished. But could yeah. you imagine if they showed a flashback relating to something from like three weeks ago and then nothing happened in the TV show <laughs> relating to the flashback? You'd be like, what was the point in that? 
And it was the exact same thing. It's so bizarre. Again, just another another kind of example of the the messy and sloppy production that takes place through every single WCW pay-per-view I've ever watched. Mm. I mean, this is the start of the show. This is the top of the show. And you are within the show. You've got a supposedly big world title match between Diamond Dallas Page, Jeff Jarrett and David Arquette for the WCW title. Uh, you've got loads of other matches as well. And yet you're you're kicking this show off with, I guess, promoting the fact that Ric Flair has just become the number one contender to the world title, even though you've still got all that other good stuff to to show for it. It's just so weird. It'd be different if they if that had happened on a Sunday night heat type of show before like just before the pay-per-view happened. Do you know what I mean? Rather than something that had been on TV four days before. And then yeah. also it'd be different if they booked Ric Flair come down and challenge the winner of the title match at the end of the pay-per-view. Then you could see why it would make sense just to remind people that Ric Flair is the number one contender after this match. But none of that. But you wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't put that at the top, though, would you? You'd put it somewhere in the show so as not to give away the nice surprise that you want to make at the end. Or you you put even... And I could understand them kind of recapping at some point during the show, maybe before Ric Flair's match, because he has a match on the show, that, oh, by the way, Ric Flair's a number one contender to the world title. He won it on Thunder. But the very first thing you see is this recap, and you're like, oh... And I'm I'm thinking not because I know I know what happens on this show and I didn't even talk about my expectations for it when we were going through our expectations earlier on. Um, I know what was on this show before I went into watching it. I knew what the main event was. I knew how it ended. I knew some of the other matches on the show. So I was like, well, I know that Ric Flair isn't the number one. Con- I know that Ric Flair doesn't wrestle for the world title. So I was like, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe the number one contendership is for the U.S. title or something. And maybe his match with Shane Douglas is for the U.S. title or something. Um but it just doesn't relate to anything. And it is for the world title. Um, and it's just really strange. It's just a really, really, really strange way to start things off. What we're saying about it, obviously not actually leading to anything on this pay-per-view. So it's odd to do it anyway. The other point is, is that it's really not very good. And it just made me think this is going to be a bag of shit. There is then a bus containing the Millionaire Club that arrives. Um, and we see the new bud watching them on a on a small monitor um, where there's Vince Russo and a number of other wrestlers. Vampiro thinks there as well. Where, uh, with Miss Elizabeth as well, sat there looking completely fed up. And my first question is, how? why did the Millionaire's Club turn up on a bus? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's bonkers, isn't it? It's, it's like, I said, like, I, like I said in the pre-record, it looks like the bus that we used to take to school. Tinky back in the day, the old bugler's buses. Uh, the New Blood, as you said, are watching it uh, in, you know, from the back. Uh, Vampiro sat in the corner looking all moody and sad and quite out of place and can't actually see the TV. <laughs> and in, in the background, there's uh, some bloke just doing bicep curls, but with no weights. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why he's doing that. It's impressive. Do you think Vampiro, because you said he couldn't see the TV because of, I, I assume because of the angle that he sat at. Um, do you think that he's the one who invented WWE's way of watching television, where they stand next to the monitor as opposed to in front of it in order to watch it? <laughs> yeah, very, maybe so. He also, to be fair, maybe because he's a vampire, maybe he thought they were all looking at a mirror and was uh, scared to look into it in case he uh, didn't show up. Do you know what I thought in this initial bit is Vince Russo is horrible, like, horrible. Like, he, his whole whether I, I don't know him personally, he's probably a cunt, to be honest. Like for, from what I've heard, and uh, why would anybody side with him? This is what I don't understand. And the, going back to this whole um, battle royal thing, what's the feud? Is it just some old people against some young people? 
Yeah, so let's let's do a bit of a recap on that because that is that informs the whole show. So it's quite important mm. to talk about that. So the idea here is that Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff have come back to WCW together as a dream team. Genuinely was considered <laughs> the dream team. I say considered. WCW promoted mm-hmm. it as a dream team because what had happened, Vince Russo had left WWF in sort of summer of '99. He turned up as the new creative force behind WCW in October of that year and had been booking the shows then up until about January of the following year, very early in January, when he was put on garden leave because he was making a number of strange suggestions for where they should go creatively, including, for example, he wanted to put the WCW title on to Tank Abbott at one point, who'd only been a wrestler for a few months, having previously been a, a mixed martial artist, and um, had not been built up in any way on screen, on WCW television, as a top contender. So, and I'll give him, I will give you the mitigating circumstances that was in place for that as well, which is that they were coming up to sold out 2000. They had two main matches booked, Bret Hart, who was the world champion against Sid, and Chris Benoit against Jeff Jarrett in a US title ladder match. Those were the two matches going into sold out that they were selling the show on and then Jarrett and Bret Hart both got injured we all we all know about Bret Hart's injury because it was the one that ended his career um following Goldberg's kick to him at Starcade 99 but also Jeff Jarrett got injured and neither of them could appear at sold out 2000 so suddenly their two main events were done and so they were trying to find very quick kind of solutions because it was about a week away the show was when they found out about these injuries they were trying to find out some really quick um, solutions to that problem um, and as part of the suggestions for the solution to that problem Vince Russo was put on garden leave now I won't go into what happened uh, sold out because actually that's got his own story and that's really interesting but basically at that point Kevin Sullivan and a number of other people from like the old world of WCW were put in charge of creative and the show became incredibly boring for the next two three months and so in mid-march WCW brought back Vince Russo. They brought back Eric Bischoff, who'd obviously been replaced around about September of 99 as well. And they were brought in as the new heads of WCW. And they stopped Nitro for a couple of weeks, put on a kind of greatest hits package of what had happened in the past uh, on Nitro. So they kind of try to big up the accomplishments of Eric Bischoff in the past. And then they started up again in April with with one Nitro and then Spring Champagne. And at the beginning of that Nitro, they vacated all of the titles and reset all of the stories now i don't think that's a very good thing to do ever is reset stories because that what you're saying everything before that basically just exposes that everything's not real which i know everyone knows is not real but you don't actually want to say it on the on screen that's just silly and then and so what and what happened is that their concept for them coming back was is that uh, they were going to put over the young guys because the young guys were always being held back by the old guys and so that they were basically saying that all the old guys hulk hogan sting Ric Flair, Lex Luger, you know, all of those guys, DDP, had been around for too long. They were the reason why WCW was in such trouble. And they were going to now promote the young guys, the Billy Kidmans, the Jeff Jarrett's, the, you know, other guys involved in WCW who simply were kind of being victims of that glass ceiling. So that was the that was the the concept behind the feud. It's not very good. It didn't really work, did it? It's safe to say. <laughs> Well, let's 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 just go into the show um, and figure out whether it did work or it didn't work. So starting with the opening match, which is Chris Candido versus the artist for the WCW Cruiserweight title, which lasts eight minutes and ends with a load of stuff that goes on at the end of the match, which is quite regular during this show. Um, it starts with uh, a Samoan drop from the artist from the second rope. 
Um, and then Tammy distracting the referee to stop him from counting for the pin. Paisley then confronts her. Um, and while she does, does that, the referee then tries to pull them apart. Tammy then grabs a chair, hits the artist with the chair behind the referee's back. Um, Candida then goes for a pin, but the artist kicks out. However, WSW's production team decided that they were going to play the music for Candido as if he had won. The commentators quickly scramble and say, oh, no, 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 hang on, that's not the end of the match. The, re- the music stops playing. Candido then hits a powerbomb and a diving headbutt from the top rope for the pin. After the match, Paisley, who I should mention is in the artist, is in the corner of the artist, gets back in the ring, low blows Candido, and then artist rips Tammy's dress off. Who wants to take on the messiness of this match first? Let's go with you, Tom. Okay, so um, the first thing I wanted to quickly note is that in my notes, I wrote the artist with parsley, um, which <laughs> um, so, but and I think it would have probably been a better name for her as well. Um, the uh, there's a bit of um, unpleasant commentary by one of the commentators. It's worth noting at this point there's a three-man commentary booth of uh, Tony Schiavone, and uh, I wrote two cunts, um, and <laughs> I also couldn't tell the difference between the two of them. So it actually felt like a two-man commentary booth with one of them who just contradicted themselves all the time, which added to the mania of this show. And not the good kind of mania, like a WrestleMania. I mean, the foaming in the mouth, eating your own shit mania. (laughs) (laughs) The two commentators, I should point out, are Scott Hudson and Mark Madden. They are our commentators for this show alongside Tony Schiavone. Uh, so one of them says, when you combine great cruiserweight action with hot tramps, you've got pro wrestling, which is a comment I thought was quite disrespectful. So that would have almost definitely been Mark Madden who made that comment. And obviously it's not particularly nice, especially when you consider that uh, Paisley is the future Mrs. Booker T. Huffman or Queen Charmel, as we uh, as we got to know. it. I mean, it was Piers Morgan talking about Meghan Markle-esque. It, it was. Yeah. The Also, the uh, the other thing. So hang on, which one's Mark Madden? Is he the boldy one or the jowly one? The jowly one. Scott Hudson's the boldy one. Right, okay. The, no, um, the boldy one's old man, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Do you know what? Do you know what? If old man was on commentary, just calling the other two commentators cunts for the entire time, it would have made the commentary so much better. <laughs> um, so, first of all, Chris Candido is massive. Is He looks far too large for his frame. And as a result of that, I noticed throughout this match that the wrestling looks really, really choreographed. Like, every time they're doing, like, a, a series of moves, it always looks like, you know, everyone's really set before it happens. And it led to quite a clunky, quite a clumsy match. I also noted at this point that there is a, a really obvious, like, low blow in it, which doesn't seem to get acknowledged at all by the um, by the referee. And it's at that point where uh, it's cut several matches down the line. It's explained that they've made a loosening of the rules and that they're kind of doing some more hardcore style, I guess, taking a page out of VCW's book. But the match isn't very good. It ends in a schmoz and it's not a particularly good match. I've got a one word or a one sentence at the end of each match kind of describing how I felt about it. And I just threw it shit. Um, the one highlight at the end is at the end when uh, Sonny is putting the belt on uh, on Skip Candido. He's got his arms up in the air. She puts the belt around his waist. And there's just a shot of some bloke with an absolutely phenomenal tash in the background <laughs> wearing, a st- <laughs> wearing a Sting T-shirt. And he looks really sad. And he continues. And I quickly checked up on the man in the background throughout the entire thing because he's, he's on the hard camera. And his facial expression doesn't change pretty much the entire show. He just sits there looking really depressed. 
through it all. And I thought to myself, <laughs> you've, you've really, you've done that, Tasha, the service, guys. And I'm talking to the, <laughs> the booking team because that Tasha deserved better than that. <laughs> I will say you talked about Chris Candido looking big. And I think both Can- Chris Candido and Tammy just look like oh. their lifestyle is taking their to- its toll on them already by this point. Um, they really both look um unhealthy and just not right at this point in time chris candido is considered to be somebody with a lot of a really good grasp of the fundamentals as a really good wrestler but here there's botches all over the place it's really really messy the artist i don't think is a particularly good wrestler saying that i i can't remember specific matches that i've seen him in in the past though i have seen him in the past he's not particularly good he is the the artist formerly known as prince iakea uh, which is the only reason he's called the artist because and this is a good insight into some of Vince Russo's thoughts on how to be creative and I put those in air quotes on a show which is basically to take the wrestler's name and we see a, we see an example of this later on in the show actually to take a wrestler's name and kind of make a pun out of it and then think about how he might make that into a character and so basically he used to be called Prince Iakea Vince Russo comes along calls him the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea just because it's a nice pun on the artist formerly known as Prince and then kind of thinks oh I'll, actually I'll call him the artist because like he can then be like this almost like a Beethoven style character or Mozart kind of style character so yeah it's not particularly good it's just it isn't a good match because it is so messy it's just it's just not good i just make a note about the the pun if we're going to call it that about him changing his name so prince at this point in his career i think in 1999 or 2000 as it was actually was not anywhere near as commercial and so he's not particularly relevant from that standpoint as a reference point also he changed his name to the artist formerly known as prince seven years before that <laughs> so it goes to show how much vince russo's got his finger on the really got his finger on the pulse you know, with the with, with the it was a real sign of the times, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, that's lovely. That. Hello, that's mate. Hello. Excellent. You know what? Fuck it. Call it. We ain't topping that. Uh, old man, what are your thoughts on the match? The main things I took from the match are pretty much what Tom said. It's not very good. So I will cover some of the bits that I particularly didn't enjoy. After I watched this match, I was like, this is the start of the show. This is like my thinking. I was like, there's only one way to start a show. And we all know what it is. Val Venus and D'Lo Brown. <laughs> and as soon as they didn't come out, I was fucking off. Um, Tammy comes out. As you said, Tinky, they look, they look like they've been in a bit of the older uh, stuff. I don't know what the stuff is, but they've been bloody hitting it hard. <laughs> and uh, so she does a little crap promo and then goes to take her coat off, but like suggestively. Then she actually does take her coat off, even though Candido is trying to stop her taking her coat off. She's wearing this dress and she seems to be wearing what looks like a granny bra. It's just horrible because I realised <laughs> then at that point, the bra is not horrible. Tammy is not horrible, but I know what's going to happen at some point in this match. She is going to get that dress ripped off of her. And I was like, oh, that's what we're building to at the end. And the crowd know it. And I can well say this for the crowd. They deserve medals for even staying. Like, and not just being at the I would have been at the bar the whole time during this whole show, I think. Two things on that. First of all, I didn't realise that it was underwear. I thought it was some kind of bandage under her dress that's what i got kind of straight because you can you said you can see the back of her and it's yeah. the backless the dresses and it looks like i thought a bandage around her ribs almost so i was like oh what has happened there it's obviously it's not because she gets her no. dress ripped off later on the show we, we we see that it is underwear but then the second thing is that this going to the crowd brilliant crowd stay with it all the way through guess mm-hmm. what guess what whatever show they were at 
It is indeed the same crowd from Backlash 2002, the old Kemper Arena in Kansas. These guys are legends. No wonder they're so happy that pay-per-view in 2002 after sitting through this shit. <laughs> so, so at the end of this pay-per-view, they probably felt really sad. Similar kind of sadness to when doves cry. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway. I want to apologise to all of you guys. I want to be your lover. <laughs> <laughs> You know, oh uh, to, to be honest, though, this is probably worth sticking with through the show because every now and then Tommy comes up with some real diamond and pearls. Oh, sorry, I got <laughs> started to feel a bit delirious talking about all this. Oh, goodness. Anyway, me. I'm so, not going to do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> good lad. So at the end of the uh, match, the crowd pop for Old Parsley Box and Tammy having a little scrap. <laughs> and I gotta say, the fucking chair shot that one of the ladies Tammy gives yeah, Tammy gives the artist is bloody good and probably the most real looking thing in the match. We then get a video package showing various violent things that had that Terry Funk has had done to them over the last few yeah. weeks and months. Now bear in mind this is Terry Funk who must be at this point sixty, uh, at least, I would have thought. Um and also we have seen him prior to this point in Beyond the Mat, where he has got a knee injury, which is basically chronically arthritic, and therefore he shouldn't be. It's a miracle he's even walking, let alone uh, actually continuing to wrestle. And they are making him, or he is choosing to, I don't know, uh, do all of these things. We then see Terry Funk walking backstage, trying to find Norman Smiley. And there he's trying to find him ahead of the match that he's got with him and a mystery partner and he finally goes into the bathroom after someone suggests that he might be in there and smiley attacks funk from behind when terry funk finds a man with a hockey mask in the in the bathroom and we're off to the races with this next match yeah so i don't know how because it kind of it, it didn't say here's terry funk it, it kind of said he's look, he's around looking for henry custard backstage <laughs> and then and then all of a sudden the match has started and a referee turns up out of nowhere but it's just really odd because it looks like there's a backstage segment that then segues into a match and it's, it's really, really bizarre. I must admit, this match was quite fun because it was so fucking stupid. Up until they get into the ring, might I add, it's quite fun because it's it's pretty stupid. But I did think to myself at the time, this must be pretty shitty if you're in the crowd because this can't be any fun at all. And then my favourite bit, if I'm being honest, was when old Funk hits Henry Custard with a poster tube. At this point, I should interject and explain that uh, we occasionally call Norman Smiley Henry Custard because I think this is a bit. This goes back to Tom. We watched WWE Nitro for the first time, like in '98, at some point when you first got cable at your house. Um, and uh, he was one of the guys on the show. And then you couldn't remember his name like a week later, and so you just <laughs> called him Henry Custard or whatever his name was, and it stuck. <laughs> it's, it's cut. It's stuck ever since. Henry Custard. Yeah, it was good to see him. It was good to see old Hank because you haven't seen Hank Custard for a while. They're having a bit of a fight. The the, hen, the, the mystery partner comes out, and he's useless he's just stand there bits where he's literally just standing around and it's like really shit and i, and I don't know again because i don't know what the the kind of the, the storyline if there was one leading into this match was i don't know if they've kind of done thing but done anything with it but just watching it cold was really weird because i was like what's going on here they finally get into the in, into the crowd what i did like at one point is that the referee hands terry funk a chair <laughs> to use um and then the mystery partner is re- revealed to be some old boy called Ralphus, who yes. I will say very much maintains his dignity. 
Thank you so much. Um, he, he gets pantsed. Henry Custard then like bums Terry Funk in the ring. Oh. And then Ralph has a go. And then Funk wins with a roll-up. And my note afterwards is, oh, sad. <laughs> so Ralphus, I should, let's just bring it back to Ralphus. Ralphus was briefly Chris Jericho's sort of, a guy that Chris Jericho used as part of his act when Jericho was still in WCW. Um, and it was actually quite, like considered very cool stuff, like quite funny and, and good comedy stuff. It's one of the things that got Jericho noticed in the WCW roster. Um, but by this point, obviously, they've got nothing for him to do. And Vince Russo thinks, oh, there's a guy who we've used for funny things in the past. Let's try and let's try and get some more comedy out of it. So that's where he comes from. And yeah, so he's the mystery partner of Norman Smiley. But as you say, we don't know that until quite late into the match because he's wearing a hockey mask throughout and, and barely gets involved in the match um, as it goes through. Old man, thoughts? I was kind of with it up until they actually get into the arena bit. Um, there's a bit where old Ralphus climbs up onto some fake grass that's like piled up and then just stands there, just ominously looking over everyone. And then Terry Funk just starts lobbing chairs at him, which yeah. I absolutely... Crazy Terry Funk is... That's all I wanted. And Smiley, or old Custard, beats him up for a while. And then Terry Funk gets his little comeback. And then I hear it. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And his custard is screaming. Like he's had custard, like poured onto his genitals. Hot custard. And I was like, is that a thing? Like, was that a thing? And then he does it multiple times. And I was like, it is a thing. And I was like, you know what? I could get on board with this. And then they get to the ring and then they start pretending to anally penetrate Terry Funk. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and then Funk wins with a roll up and, and then they have a dance, Smiley and Custard. <laughs> Custard and Ralphus have a dance at the end and they lost and, uh, and Shavoni says that the crowd are having a great time and then they show the crowd and they don't look like they're having a good time. <laughs> My abiding memory is <laughs> no idea what was going on. All I know is I saw Terry Funk bent over, bummed by <laughs> Ralphus, get a win, custard and Ralphus, have a dance. <laughs> then they just move on with their life. <laughs> but you know so, what? Enjoyable nonsense. So Norman Smiley is screaming Norman Smiley. That is his kind of, it is his gimmick. It's entirely his thing. I thought you meant he was screaming Norman Smiley, as in he was screaming his name. He's like seven. Norman Smiley! No, that's what he's known as, screaming Norman Smiley. And he, they say at the beginning of the match, in fairness to them, they do say at the beginning of the match, impressive that Norman Smiley was able to sneak up on Terry Funk without screaming before he did it, because that's what he does. Um, I, in stark contrast to you guys, didn't like anything in this match at all. I thought it was absolutely atrocious from beginning to end like as i said already terry funk is very old he's very banged up what the fuck are they doing giving him this match and also i think if you give this match to him and you make it serious and you make it part of a kind of serious feud okay maybe but he's doing all this 
for absolutely nothing for no reason whatsoever there's nothing memorable about it it's just stupid puerile garbage and i just think don't put him through it like you don't like if he again he's working really hard he is he is absolutely working his bollocks off terry funk he's getting hit by all kinds of stuff he's getting thrown all over the place um and yet he's doing it for this and i just thought at this point i just feel bad for terry funk because it's just shouldn't be doing it but that's why my one sentence lineup is just how sad because it is fucking sad, especially to someone. It reminds me of like the stuff that like um, Flair did in TNA. Do you know what I mean? Oh. That sort of sort of stuff. Does it makes you makes you think like, oh, such a, a sad end. What like his career should have ended ages before this, but it's a sad chapter in the career of Terry Funk, especially when you think about some of the amazing matches and moments that he has had throughout his career. I wondered at this point as well. So this is what just a year later gets absorbed into WWE, and then the people who were on the show, the wrestlers and the commentary team and everyone, would be like, "This is fucking shit," and I just can't wait for it to end because I've got a feeling that they might be just watching it with hindsight, but I've got a feeling that it, it seems a bit like that at times as well. I, I think maybe uh, eventually. I don't know if that was the feeling at this point, and I think it's worth saying that I've plotted out the kind of timeline that was that had happened prior to this. And it's important to say that prior to that timeline, Vince Russo had been largely credited with the good stuff that had happened on WWE television during the Attitude Era up to that point. And obviously that was the period when WWE came storming back in the ratings and overtook WCW and put on some of the stuff that, you know, people now look back on as being classic. And so there was a genuine feeling when he went to WCW that Vince Russo could be the man to make a massive difference to WCW. Now, that kind of the shine of that came off a little bit during that first three or four months that he was in he was in charge of the creative and then went away but it hadn't fully gone away because he'd only been there for three or four months so it wasn't like people were like this guy is just terrible like not everyone had got to that point of view by this point and this was only a month or so after he'd returned with eric bischoff and so i think what you i think again kind of contradictory tom to what you said i think there are lots of evidence of lots of people working really hard on this show just being given and looking quite motivated and i'll get to that later on when we come to one match but just because i guess they were thinking well maybe this is a chance maybe we can do something here um and they had had three months of really really stale television with the kind of older group of people that had been booking wcw for a couple of months in in january february and march so i think that at this point i don't know if I, there probably were people saying this is shit but maybe that they were thinking this is shit, but it might have a chance of working because again, we're kind of in a period where wrestling was massively changing at the time. The whole attitude era stuff was very different. It was presented in a very different way than wrestling had been previously presented. And so there was maybe a a lot of people going, Oh, this is shit, but almost like the reaction to that being, yeah, but that's just because you really like the old stuff. So I I don't know that amongst the talent at this point, there was this kind of sense that this is going to, this is going to, we're going to massively fail. This is going to fall on his, on his face. But certainly I do think that that ended up being the case. I just don't think they were there at this point. Do you think that when Terry Funk was bent over and those two men were pretending to have sex with him, that he thought, you know what? I think this company's in for the long haul because this is some good stuff. <laughs> well, I just, I just think, look again. Terry Funk is working his bollocks off here. There's no, he would be phoning it in if he didn't think it had a chance. Yeah. So I just, I, I, you know, I can only assume that he was hopeful that this would be a brave new era for WCW. So we're not professional wrestlers. We tried but failed. 
We didn't try. So, well, I I used to wrestle a teddy bear when I was a kid. <laughs> oh man, wrestling a teddy bear and having sex with it is not the same thing. <laughs> I used to have sex with a teddy bear when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, yeah. So hang on, I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> Think so, about that teddy bear again. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, he's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, god. My word. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to move on. You can make this point later on, old man. I'm going to move on. No, no, no. It's okay. I'm, I'm here. I'm back in the room. So, you're, you're Terry Funk, right? You've got the reputation and the respect that Terry Funk has. Undoubtedly, in 2000, he's seen very highly within the business. They say to you, all right, Tez, we'd like you to work this match. And at the end of it, people are going to pretend to have sex with you from behind, as I did to that poor teddy bear. Except in your case, it wasn't pretend. <laughs> <laughs> it's very real, especially for the teddy bear. <laughs> How much would they have to have been paying you? I mean, I don't care what people think about me, particularly, in particular in the wider context. But I think I'd have to be paid a, a tidy sum to bend over in a wrestling ring and have Ralphus in custard pretend to have sex with me one after the other. How much do you reckon it take you, boys? <laughs> so I, I'm talking, if they paid off my mortgage, go on, I'll do it. <laughs> do you reckon they were like, they, they walked up to the arena the day, fucking Bischoff and Risa come and be like, listen, you boys, you guys are going to run a train on Terry Funk later on. You'd be like, oh, really? <laughs> Am I? I don't want to do that. <laughs> I think it would take a, a, a large sum of money. I'm pretty pretty sure about that. You, you need something to compensate you for the lack of employment you'd have afterwards. So uh, mm. it would be pretty important. I, I'd never get respected as a user researcher again if people had known <laughs> I'd bummed Terry Funk. And I'm not so sure. I think you'd be the old. You're the you're the user researcher who's willing to go anywhere. You are. That's, <laughs> I I think you'd uh, I think you'd get more employment off the back of that. Right. Gene Oakland is next up. He catches up with David Arquette, who's just arrived backstage in a limousine. So, therefore, demoting the entire Millionaires Club, all the big stars on the show who come in on a bus. He turns up in a limo and puts them all to shame. Um, Arquette says he doesn't need his wife's money when it's suggested to him that uh, that he's using that instead of anything else. And Oakland then questions why he hasn't arrived with the Millionaires Club. So it's worth pointing out at this point that David Arquette has got a friendship with DDP and uh, they have kind of got, um, they've been teaming up recently in the build up to this match. And of course it is that, it is that friendship which has led to David Arquette becoming WCW world champion by this point. So I've got a little point on this. Mm -hmm. And not the same little point that I used to give that poor teddy bear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we've got the interviewer and David Arquette directly referencing, obviously, friends. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. The interviewer, old man. That is not that is not how we address Mean Gene Oakland. He he looks like Mr. Peanut in this, though. It's something I can't unsee. So Mr. Peanut says to David Arquette, David Arquette in uh, Spanish, and he said, like, they're talking about Courtney Cox and how much he gets paid. Obviously, talking about Friends. Friends is on NBC, which isn't anything to do with Turner Network. And I was just like, just a very little thing. I was like, why the fuck are they mentioning that? And also, why are they mentioning his wife anyway? Like, it's just like... That's because that's because she's the most famous thing about him. That's why. Well, she is, and I think he handles it quite well. Okay, and he then manages to sell the match and his fear of the match reasonably well. But I'm disappointed in Mr. Peanut 
for raising uh, about Courtney Cox Arquette. My, my note about that is that David Arquette says, I'm scared, but don't let the smile fool you. He hasn't smiled once during this promo. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after Gene Oakland brought up Courtney Cox and the million dollars per episode that she was making from Friends. Yeah. So then we have the next match, Sean Stasiak against Kurt Hennig, a match everybody wanted to see. Let's be perfectly oh. honest. Eight minutes this one goes and ends when Stasiak hits a very poor, I will say, perfect plex for the pin. Uh, oh man, let's start with your thoughts on this one. Oh, bloody hell. This is, <laughs> I, I'll be honest, this was a tough watch. So we touched upon on a previous episode, available in the archives, about Mr. Perfect. When he passed away, it made me quite sad. I, I have some good memories watching Mr. Perfect when I uh, when I was younger, and this is not one of those good memories. He's not. Um, he does it. He's not in very good shape. He's obviously known as Kurt Hennig, so it's actually a Hennig plex. But Stasiak kids, please, Tinky. Sorry. Please. I don't know what else to say, but it's just really not good. Sean Stasiak, Sean, the perfect one, Stasiak, should probably have been playing the Terry Funk role, to be honest. <laughs> the one part of enjoyment that I got out of it, although I did kind of hope that the match was going to end. So Stasiak, Scott, Og Hennig, Og Curtie H in the old uh, sleeper hold. Terrible, he's wrenching it in hard. <laughs> Cuts to the crowd. Some dude is holding DDP's book up in the crowd <laughs> just, just, just holding it up and then they yeah and then they go back to the ring sleep hold still on and they do the lovely old school lift up of the arm one lift up of the arm two lift up the arm. now he, he holds his arm up and then it goes into shit and then it ends you, you were very kind about the hemiplex it was what i imagine me and that teddy if we did <laughs> the, the perfect flex it would have looked better than that I don't think anything looks better than the visual of you and that Teddy right now. Uh, <laughs> Thomas. Sean Stasiak has got Mr. Perfect's music. Yes, yes. I know that, yeah. Which is very odd, but I will count that by saying the guitar in Kurt Hennig's music is absolutely phenomenal. I am going to try and find that, and I'm going to have that on a playlist somewhere because it is absolutely face-melting. So, some great tans. We, yes. can, we can all agree, some great tans in there. Um, there's a little bit where Kurt Hennig slaps Charles Robinson, and Charles Robinson looks genuinely annoyed. It's quite it got a nice little touch. But the one thing you did mention, Tinky, is that uh, Chavo, some other bloke, and Dog the Bounty Hunter are in the crowd, <laughs> uh, wearing the most ineffective camo of all time. So, so they're wearing like camo pattern stuff, but it's all like luminous green and uh, and yellow and purple. I don't know what kind of background you're trying to get into. So these guys, Lash Taru, uh, Chavo Guerrero and Van Hammer are the three men at ringside. They are the misfits in action. So effectively, we've got the Millionaire's Club and New Blood. They are in a feud with one another. But in the meantime, there are kind of these misfits who haven't fitted into either side. And these are three of them. And they've effectively been fired by Vince Russo and, and Eric Bischoff. And they are that's why they're in the crowd. They are sat in the front row uh, uh, because they paid to to be there supposedly and um but they are yeah so they're watching on as the misfits in action and they later on will play a part in the show uh yeah for me so there was the really rushed messiness of the opener then there was the just oh, awfulness of the second match and i was like actually even though this wasn't very good i was i was quite relieved by this because at least it was just a straight wrestling match between two men mm. for eight minutes and i was like it doesn't he's not going crazy they're not doing anything special they're not doing anything particularly good either and Hennig looks really old during the match but at least 
there's nothing else. It's just a match. It happens. It ends with a clean finish, pretty much. I mean, there's probably some cheating in there somewhere, but we haven't got any run-ins. We haven't got any mm. stupidness. We haven't got any weapons. It was like, oh, okay. I mean, it wasn't very good, but at least at least it was, you know, something a bit more standard, which whatever could bring me down a little bit, ready for whatever was to come next. And I was quite relieved by it. But you're right, it's it's not good. It's just always disappointing to see a match where someone doesn't get bummed at the end of it to be honest <laughs> so after the match we see backstage vince russo with scott steiner kimberly page and elizabeth none of them seem to be particularly happy with him quite frankly they all seem a bit no. like, like fed up of this knobhead uh, that they're with because that's how he comes across during the show um and in real life then we get hugh morris who comes to the ring and says he does not want to be called Hugh Morris anymore. Um, that was a brain fart that Eric Bischoff came up with. He says that from now on, he wants to be known as Hugh G. Rection or Captain Hugh G. Rection, as he then christens himself. So um, he is then Captain Hugh G. Rection. Uh, I've just got it. <laughs> oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Didn't get it at all. And I've written Hugh G. Rection. I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah, so it's Hugh G. Rection, uh, and he faces then Scott Steiner in a match for the US title, which is nine and a half minutes, and ends when Steiner goes for a tombstone. Captain Rection reverses it, goes for a moonsault, but then Steiner moves out of the way partially. Only just. Yeah. Um, Steiner then applies the Steiner recliner for the submission victory and retains the title. Uh, Old man, your thoughts on this one? I'm not not the big... Not a big Scott Steiner fan. I'm not sure anybody would. Uh, but I bloody love his siren. I absolutely love it. The siren had had me popping. So he comes down with two ladies, which is decent. Like plays into his uh, little character. He does seem to get very agitated by what could only be described as a middle-aged man who should probably know better in the crowd. Who was evidently goading him and then continuously goads him. And I don't know what he said to Steiner, whether he said his beard's a bit shit. I don't know. But he like he goes back to them a few times. Um, old uh, old boner man does a wheel kick at one point, and all I could think of was he's no viscera. <laughs> that doesn't um, say a lot about anyone, does it? If they're no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Steiner does a lovely pirouette belly to belly suplex for a two count at one point which to be honest actually looked really good i thought i actually thought oddly steiner was all right in this because by all accounts he could basically barely move at this point and i thought the ladies on the side were excellent i thought they managed to cover up both of these guys deficiencies i mean old boner man he's evidently got an enormous dick so it must be hard for him carrying that around it's not very good, let's be honest. I quite enjoyed the little tombstone reversal. I thought that was quite good. Yeah. Then uh, there's a little weird schmoz bit at the end, obviously, because there has to be, which I don't think you uh, touched on, Tinky, which is the misfits are stopped from getting into the ring by security. Security are there, like, before it's even happening, which is very efficient of them because it was... That's the kind of thing that would normally annoy me, but they were so quick getting over that barrier that security kind of had to be there to stop it and then booker t comes down and gives steiner the high boot thing and then i was like oh cool so that's happening then and then i was like oh what was the point in everything else so as you say after the match after steiner wins with the steiner recliner the misfits in action jump over the guardrail and are stopped by r&b security r&b russo and bischoff security as Ah. as steiner holds rection in the camel clutch 
um booker t then runs in and makes the save and they the misfits in action old man's corpse in i don't know what's going on with him now he's done it's, it's because you keep referring to him as rection <laughs> that's his name old man it's, what can I do? it's, it's got given name yeah, absolutely. Huge erection. I'll yeah. tell you what, it fucking worked. We're laughing about it now, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, I was talking about earlier on about Vince Russo's style, which is basically to base a character around the name that you can give them. And that is another example here. It, but he also kills him Captain Rection, which mm. plays into the Misfits in action, because that is MIA, obviously. And so what happens is these ma- Misfits in action, so you've got Chavo Guerrero, Lash and Van Hammer. I can't remember Van Hammer's name, but Chavo Guerrero would become Lieutenant Loco. Lash would become um, Corp- Corporal Cajun, I think. Corporal Cajun, I think was his name. And then obviously you've got Captain Rection, who later would be promoted to General, as in oh, General. Lovely general erection because there was a general election coming up later that year (laughs) and also booker t this is where gi bro comes from because he would join the misfits in action as gi bro uh Mm -hmm. later on but at the moment he had he wasn't gi bro still booker t and he was part of this sort of group that was effectively these were the young guys that were baby faces that weren't joining in on the assault on the millionaires club who were the who were the baby faces as well um and so weren't joining vince russo and eric bischoff's kind of stable of new blood and so that was kind of the idea they were eking out this niche of of guys that weren't heels even though they're part of the younger group of wrestlers you know what um, i quite like that i quite like that i, I yeah, think yeah. that's not bad in more efficient and proficient hands i think it would have worked it might have worked quite well a couple of notes i think old man's done quite a good job at covering the match but there's a couple of things you missed out old man first of all a ginger ref don't see that very often. It's the first time I've ever seen a ginger referee. Um, which no, it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just something I know. It's what's good to see. There's a, you know, they're they're taking, you know, all, all types. Um, there's a move I've never seen in a wrestling match, or, or a combination of moves I've never seen before. Tremendous work. Scott Steiner whips Rection into the ropes and thinking, "Oh, what's going to go?" Whips into the ropes. Bear hug. <laughs> <laughs> never seen that before. And that's it. So I, I thought this was a decent match. It's one of the best things on the show in terms of a wrestling match, in my view. Steiner, interestingly, old man, you, your comment about him going, oh, about saying, oh, he's actually quite good here. There is, this is probably Steiner's, arguably his peak in-ring year in terms of as a main event guy. Like he had never been a main event guy before this year. He becomes a main event uh, during this year and has, I believe, some pretty interesting, pretty good matches with Goldberg later in the year. They have some really hard-hitting kind of quite, I guess you might call them Brock Lesnar style matches where there are lots of suplexes, lots of kind of, and again, a style of wrestling that wasn't regularly seen, especially on WWE television, where Austin was one of the headliners and wouldn't didn't take suplexes, quite frankly, because it wouldn't have been any good for him. Um, and so it was quite uh, unique, and they got quite a lot of credit for their matches. So at this point, Steiner was actually in pretty good was in pretty good form in terms of his in ring ability, and I thought it was decent. Steiner does a couple of belly to belly suplexes in this one, and one of them is just absolutely beautiful. It might be the uh, old Skippy oh, <laughs> Skippy classic, one. I don't know the classic pirouette. But is it is it is really really nice and um, yeah I I thought this was all right if it, on a on a better show this would be a decent continuation of that show. Backstage, Canyon is interviewed by Mean Gene Oakland. Um, Canyon says that he is going to stick with Paige because he's his brother and blood is thicker than water. He's not actually his brother, but there you go. Um, So the whole 
the whole blood being thick in the more it doesn't actually make sense but there we go and then his match is up next against mike awesome um, we see footage of mike awesome powerbombing canyon and hulk hogan on nitro and thunder through tables um and then we have the match and this match goes for 12 minutes so during during the match awesome can, keeps uh, exposing parts of the uh the mats uh, uh ringside uh, awesome does a release german suplex in the ring and then goes to uh, power bomb uh canyon onto one onto the floor from the uh entrance ramp which ww in uh, occasionally had and they had it here um the wolfpack music then hits uh, as awesome looks to do that and kevin nash comes down and attacks awesome um he is then outnumbered however by the new blood um, by a number of members of the New Bud. And then the Millionaires Club run to the ring, followed by R&B Security. The match ends. Is it a no contest? Is it a double disqualification? Is it disqualification for Canyon? Who knows? There's no announcement. Tom, what are your thoughts on this one? Even by wrestling standards, Mike Awesome's mullet is out of place at this point. <laughs> it doesn't need to be in that way. No one else has got a mullet of that calibre. There's a really weird bit at the beginning of the match. I don't know if you boys noticed this, but literally, as soon as the match starts... Everyone from that you can see in the crowd starts looking to their right. Yeah. Everyone in the crowd, no idea what was going on over there. I guess Terry Funk was being anally penetrated in the crowd <laughs> by a teddy bear. <laughs> oh, the teddy bear's revenge. Uh, hey, the teddy bear wouldn't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so the match, the match is whatever. But there's there's a bit there's a bit that I did know. I mean, we've seen the hellacious poster tube shot. That uh, yeah. Terry Funk gives to Lord Henry Custard. How can you top it? Mike Awesome gets a bottle of water, opens it, takes the lid off, and then hits Canyon with it. Yes. Brutal. Look at all It's one of the most vicious shots I've ever seen. There's a horrible powerbomb onto the right onto the mm. neck of Canyon mm. in this. And that's when, and then at that point, he's about to powerbomb Canyon onto the concrete, but then Mash, Nash makes a save. Mash! Kevin, <laughs> <laughs> old, old Spud comes down to the ring, <laughs> and he, uh, and he he's walking so slowly down the entrance ramp, and looks so bored, and like he don't want to be there. And then he gets into the ring, and Tony Schiavone he's like, "Oh my God, he got in over the top rope!" It's like <laughs> he's always done that. I've never not seen him get into the ring in any other way. It, Tony Schiavone's really impressed. He's like, "Oh my God, the yeah. size of him! He comes in over the top rope." Fucking hell, Tony, all right, mate, calm down. I know there's not much to boast about in this moment, but <laughs> but then I wrote, yeah, same as you, then to goes, I wrote, who won? I assume awesome, because Kevin Nash comes down to, to interfere, and it's not explained. No, not explained at all. Oh, man. I thought up until when Nash appears, this is the best match so far. Mike Awesome's pretty good. Uh, Chris Champagne Canyon, mm-hmm. let's give him his full name, which is fucking amazing, because it doesn't make any sense. Don't make any sense, Champagne, but why not? Well, bloody other. I wasn't very impressed with Canyon's punches. So if I asked who better than Canyon at punching, I'd say everyone. Um, I thought it was just decent. It was hard hitting. Awesome, very powerful chap. He hits an Alabama slam on Canyon that looks like it. If he did that to me, or God forbid he did that to my teddy, then I think all of the stuff in would have come out of me. I'm definitely the teddy. It had me invested. Because when he <laughs> when he takes the uh, exposed, <laughs> oh, God. I, oh, no. <laughs> I think in the second part we're going to get away from the telly. Oh, this is God. Much of a disruption. 
Just causing far too much of a disruption. Yeah, yeah. Mike Orson's doing an Alabama slam on a teddy and just all this stuffing and cum just flying everywhere. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh crusty, crusty <laughs> insides. <laughs> I'm, uh, let, let me take over and let me tell you what I think of that. Yeah, I've, got, I've got one one thing which is actually quite important and we've got away from it. So I was I was with this match because when Awesome sets up Canyon for the powerbomb to the outside, I think because of the brutal Alabama. <laughs> 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 so because of the powerbomb before, I thought <laughs> he's going to fucking do this. He's going to actually do it. And I think it's the only time I've ever been happy to see Kevin Nash because it didn't happen. Yeah. So we didn't power bomb him onto the floor. So everyone's a winner, apart from the last few minutes when, as you said, about it's about 400 people come down to the ring. I think. Yeah, I agree with you, old man. I thought this was actually really good. I thought this was this mm. was erring into really good territory until the really disappointing ending, which I just I just didn't think there was any need for it. It was really got lots of power based moves, but both guys can do a bit of flying, so they both did a suicide dive. I think during the match. There's some really cool like little bits and pieces here, there, and everywhere. And I thought, yeah, I'm with this all the way. I was just really disappointed by the end. I just thought, have Mike Orson win it, um, and you know we're all we're all good. And they didn't have that, which was a, which is a real shame. And it ends with yeah, the Millionaires Club and the New Blood and everyone else running in. And as you said, there are about 400 people in the ring by the end of it. I will say one thing about Mike Orson is it's a bit of a shame that he never really made the made it to the heights that you think he could do because he is very good. Mm. Um, and I do wonder is, is there was there like a personality thing with him is he a bit of a dick I don't know actually I mean the, the thing is he was ECW champion of course when WCW signed him so they had all that messiness as well he came in they made him look really quite cool um, they made him look like a bit of a monster that was going to be one of the top guys that they were trying to position for the future and then they made him that 70s guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and then obviously everything went to, to pot. And then he did join WWE along yeah. with a lot of the WWE guys. I don't know what happened. Obviously, there's something. It, it might have been to do with, you know what it, it was like at the time. There were lots of people in WWE who felt like there was a way to work. Mm. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that was part of it or just whether or not actually he was a bit dangerous. I mean, we did see in this match that powerbomb, which he did on Canyon, where he dropped him incredibly poorly onto the back of his neck. Now, I don't know if that was something that they had kind of talked about beforehand to up the ante in the match. I'd be surprised, though. I don't think it was needed. Yeah. Um, so maybe that was it. I don't really know. But you're right. He does seem like someone who has the, the kind of uniqueness and the skill and the look to be some somebody that if you book him right could have been quite important for the company. So just just quickly looking, I just got a quick check on the on this old wiki page, and he says apparently he was released in 2002 along with Sean Stasiak and Horace Hogan, so two real stars on this show. <laughs> also quoted as saying, "Being in the WWE sucked. They hated it. You had to kiss everybody's ass. You had to be on your political toes all the time." You would not believe the backstage politics. You were getting stabbed in the back constantly. I was so happy when I was told I was gone. So yeah, it's a bit of a bit of an interesting one, isn't it? Because whilst I think there probably, especially at that time, there would have been a big element of that. You'd imagine in WWE, you you do think that if you kept your head down and didn't speak up too much and kind of got on with it, you may have done something for a little bit and kind of managed to work your way in almost. Yeah. 
yeah who, who knows um let's take a break there um uh, we are halfway through the show so it's a it's a good place to take a break and nice. we'll be back in just a moment. Gene Douglas. No, no, no. Get it right, Mean Gene. It's the franchise. Franchise Shane Douglas, nearly a decade of bad blood, comes to a boiling point tonight as you meet the nature boy, Ric Flair. Seven years. Seven long and torturous years of listening to the nature boy's BS. You heard it. I'm a limo riding, jet flying, son of a gun. To be the man, whoo, you gotta beat the man. I'm the dirtiest player in the game. It goes on and on and it ends tonight i'm damn sick and tired of hearing it nature boy look into my eyes the window on a man's soul tonight nate i retire your ass once and for all and when the dust settles you will know you just got your ass franchised okay welcome back and we are now into the second half of wcw slambury 2000 we've wiped the foam from our rabid chins and we're ready to go once more uh following what has been so far a bit of a, a bit of a car crash of an episode we've had we should say again that we had the first 20 minutes we did kind of start and then forgot that we weren't recording my fault entirely and then we tried to redo it and we've had the fit of the giggles pretty much ever since so uh, hopefully the second half of the show will be a bit tidier um and it starts with a hype video for lex luger against buff bagwell during which time we find out that vince russo has said that uh, elizabeth is the property of wcw and so he is taking ownership of her effectively suggesting that vince russo now owns liz which is all a bit strange and we see that backstage again she is not happy with vince russo and uh, vince russo tells her to go and wear something else than the dress that she's wearing because she previously wore that with Le- when she was with lex luger any thoughts on this little bit before we go into the match the reason this bit is in there in particular with the dress it's for the end of the match so it's so that liz leaves the side of russo but russo is such a cunt that he effectively all he manages to do is put himself over doesn't make any sense if you're booking any wrestling promotion and you want to book a story such as this which is in bad taste and isn't very nice and it's a bit horrible anyway I don't think you want to put yourself at the center of it as if you are the guy that's doing all the nasty stuff. Like you are writing it and you are writing that you now own this other woman. That's just that's like, first of all, don't do it. But then when once you've decided you're going to do it, don't make yourself to be the guy that owns the woman because it just you're you're effectively writing in that you own it. It's just really weird. Yeah. And also, literally, that's the case with everyone. So why does he own everyone who's contracted to WCW? It's very true. It's um, almost as if it doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah. Um, so then Lex Luger and Buff Bagwell have their match. It is uh, 10 minutes and it's got uh, another busy finish, so shall we say. Backstage, we see Elizabeth attack Russo with a weapon. So it's worthwhile saying that the camera keeps going back to the backstage during this match. And Russo uh, is attacked with a weapon by Elizabeth. But in the ring, meanwhile, Luger takes control and hits a power slam. Liz then comes to the ring and tries to hit Bagwell with a baseball bat, but Bagwell snatches it away, hits Luger, but there's no disqualification. Going back to the point you made, Tom, earlier about the referees apparently making the rules a little bit less uh, strict. However, uh, he did hit him with a baseball bat, so you feel like that's beyond the strictness that yeah. level that you thought you'd put in place. Um, Bagwell goes for the buff blockbuster, but Liz hits Bagwell with the bat, and then Luger locks in a torture rack for the win. 
Afterwards, Chuck Palumbo runs in, who's evidently making his debut uh, at this point in WCW. Um, Palumbo rucks Luger as Bagwell holds Liz to watch, and Bagwell then carries Liz backstage, supposedly, I assume, to be returned to her owner, Vince Russo. Uh, let's start with Thomas. I'm not going to lie, that's my notes here aren't very interesting. <laughs> the first one is I, what occurred to me as being really odd was how seriously Lex Luger was posing in the ring. So seriously that he's pulled his knee pads down so you can see all of his thighs. Which I thought was just really weird. Like just really, and he's like, it comes down to this like weird classical music and it's just so like, it's so serious. You know what I mean? It's not like, it's not even like, I mean, that you think back on it, like the Hogan must pose in the 80s sort of thing. It's, it's a bit weird. But he's at least being like, oh, yeah, you guys want some? Yeah, look at these. Yeah. Whereas, like, Lucas just said, it's like, on his own, it's so, like, stoic. And, like, Buff Bagwell's music might be an absolute banger. I think it is. I can't remember it now, but I've written that. The commentator, it's the first point I realised that the commentator refers to Hulk Hogan by his real name, which I thought mm. was very odd, which I've got yeah. questions about for later. Um, but I've literally just got to Russo, cuts to Russo, where Liz hits him with a bat. And then Chuck Palumbo and his tan come down to attack Luger. <laughs> Which one gets to the ring first, Chuck Palumbo or his tan? <laughs> I'll tell you what, that tan has got. I'll tell you, on a show of already some pretty good tans. This one that Chuck Palumbo's rocking is magnificent. Um, but that is literally all the notes I've got from it. I can't remember really anything from this. I don't know if that meant that I quite enjoyed it, so I didn't take many notes, or I stopped paying attention. I think it's probably that. I I have a lot of luger stuff here so he comes out he's got four percent body fat apparently i've got four percent body fat and a little bit more but it's got it's only four percent it's not that impressive is it <laughs> yeah and <laughs> come out with none and then we'll fucking talk about you lex on tom's point of luger's entrance what we are led to believe in this storyline is that lex luger and liz obviously as they were i believe in real life at this time are a couple and Vince Russo has effectively kidnapped Liz. As we touched upon, not a good way to do a story. He's fighting Buff Bagwell, right? Now, I am currently a single man. You two are both married, right? If I was in a relationship, right, and some dude had um, had kidnapped my good lady or my teddy. Oh, my God, not my teddy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then, and then they make me fight someone. The first thing I would want to do is to rip that guy's fucking head off. But no, no, it's all right, because what Luger's going to do is not only do his little pose thing with his knee pads down, he's not only going to do that, looking very serious, he's then going to take what felt like about a month and a half to actually lock up with Buff Bagwell. There's no urgency, and I can see why there's no urgency, because I think we're about three minutes into the match and Luger walks past the camera on the outside and he looks fucked. Now, I do not know whether he is fucked because he's tired or whether he's fucked because of some of his uh, well-advertised other problems that he was going through, that I believe, at this stage. But this all leads me round to my main point, which is the fact that Buff Bagwell, obviously we had Buff, that sold out, 1997 he got a big pop from all of us this night he works his fucking socks off for luger like he puts in an absolute shift and buff bagwell is i might have watched two matches 
So I am getting ahead of myself. Maybe the greatest of all time. <laughs> Just behind Val Venus. I think, gen, gen, like, all jokes aside, without Bagwell, this would be unwatchable shit. And I don't like Lex Luger, and he can fucking have it. I would say that it's almost unwatchable as it is, to be honest, because it is really terrible. Your point is absolutely correct, old man. Despite this, this is my note. Despite this match being apparently very personal due to what's happened to Elizabeth, Luger is still happy to engage in a pose down before the match. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Bagwell giving him the old, like, he's, Bagwell's doing a bit of posing, as he should be. He's the heel. He's kind of, like, taunting his opponent. Luger responds, not with violence, but, all right, fine, I'll show you, and then poses himself. And you're like, fucking hell, like, this woman has been kidnapped by this horrible guy. And you, your, your main concern here is showing that you have bigger muscles than buff bagwell yeah it was it's just ridiculous and then of course this is yeah, luger just doesn't care luger is the without doubt the one person on the show who absolutely is phoning it in and has been phoning it in for a long time prior to this he just ain't interested his offense is incredibly dated by this point in his career and he's got nothing and he's he's probably bigger more muscular than he's ever been as well like you know in all, in all fairness he is only interested in the bodybuilding aspects of pro wrestling by this this point and doesn't absolutely does nothing to sell the the supposed intensity and personal nature of this feud so very poor and and part of me feels like elizabeth shouldn't have run to the ring she should just like run away because clearly luger don't care enough he's, he's more interested <laughs> in posts so run away from everybody and and just get yourself away from the wrestling business um that yes. probably would have been the best thing she could have done when did she pass away Liz? was it reasonably it's close after? it's not is it that's um that's another thing that I think hit me. Couple of years. Uh, yeah. Three, three years. Two thousand and three, apparently. Yeah, obviously hit me. And she is wearing a lovely what? She's wearing a dress that seems to be made up of doilies, which I thought was lovely. And she looked she looked quite good in it. We've just done it just, again. Another reference to a thing that I bet has never been referenced on a wrestling podcast before. <laughs> doilies. doilies. <laughs> Backstage, Dean Oakland interviews Shane Douglas about Ric Flair. Douglas says that tonight he will retire the Nature Boy. And this interestingly feeds into Old Living Dangerously 99 that we talked about uh, some weeks ago now. Because obviously in that um, in that uh, show, the fans were referencing Flair uh, when they were chanting about him. And Douglas, I think, also did reference him in an interview or, or something to that effect. And that's because there had been a quite well-documented personal true life bit of needle between the two for some time uh dating well back to shane douglas being in wcw in the early 90s and not feeling like he was getting any opportunities from then booker rick flair and this is again a classic staple of vince russo booking though is oh there's a real life thing between these two guys and only a very small fraction of the audience knows about it let's put them together and make it seem more real than it really really is so anyway, that's that's why we've got Shane Douglas versus Ric Flair in this one. Ric Flair comes to the ring wearing actual clothes, not mm-hmm. yeah. ears, ring gear, which is very strange. And then we have the ending of the match, which comes after about nine minutes. And I've got to, again, refer back to my notes because it is once more a busy oh. finish, a creative finish. I think some people might yeah, say in inverted one, commas. That's one word for it. Fuck me. So Flair starts to work on Shane Douglas's knee uh, after Flair hit another low blow in front of the ref, which, again, I've got no DQ, question mark, exclamation mark. Um, But whilst he's working on the knee, Bagwell and Vince Russo 
uh, come to the ring, or at least what we think is Vince Russo, dressed as Sting. I should also point out at this point that one of the pre-match stipulations to this match is if Vince Russo interferes, Flair gets to be in the ring with him for five minutes. And you're also seeing a pattern here where Vince Russo seems to be positioning himself as the main heel in every feud. So we've already got him in the Lex Luger, Elizabeth Bagwell thing going on. And he's also now a major part of this. The person dressed as Sting hits Flair with a baseball bat and Douglas gets the pin. Then the heels attack Flair. um, But after they walk off, Flair calls Russo back to the ring because he thinks it's it's Russo under the mask of Sting. And he calls him back saying, look, you interfered. I want my five minutes of the ring. Um, It is then revealed that Russo isn't Sting, that in fact, the guy dressed as Sting is David Flair. David Flair and Vince Russo then attack Ric Flair. Kevin Nash then comes out to make the save, but Daphne arrives from nowhere, hits Nash with a low blow. Russo then hits Nash with a baseball bat, leave the ring, happy with themselves that they vanquished these two older guys. Um, Classic. I think you'll both agree. Old man, let's start with you. Watching you trying to process that in your head (laughs) was exactly how I felt when I was watching it. So there's one point. I'm going to pick up on the fake sting that is David Flair actually hits Ric Flair with a miniature Statue of Liberty, (laughs) which you cannot tell. And Tony Schiavone is at pains to point out, which must be a thing because David Flair is wearing an I Love New York T-shirt as well. Well, it's because because obviously he's pretending to be Vince Russo, who was a notorious New York fan and is from New York. But what they they failed to mention during this entire time, when they're like, oh, it must be Vince Russo dressed up as Sting, is that he's wearing completely different clothes to Vince Russo, (laughs) what he's wearing. Vince Russo's been wearing like a yellow baseball top through the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And now they assume that he comes down because he's got an I Love New York t-shirt on and had previously dressed like Sting, despite the fact that he's got completely different clothes on. Uh, In fairness, they're not the only ones who fall for it because old Rick falls for it too, doesn't he? (laughs) He does. So yeah. I know I, I know on the match, Dean Douglas, he's wearing some knee pads. He's wearing them properly, unlike Nugo, when Nugo's doing his little pose down whilst his girlfriend's being kidnapped. Tassel's hanging off the knee pads, which must have made putting the figure four on an absolute fucking nightmare for old Flair. Getting those tassels out of the way, get the figure four on there. To be honest, they, like what they get, they actually do quite well because it's pretty stiff. Old Dean Douglas gets a nice bit of heat. As well, he see, he seems to get the crowd involved, and then it all goes to shit. And when they when they said start the five minutes, I'll be honest, I almost cried. So I was like, are we actually gonna have to watch five minutes of this? <laughs> and then Kevin Nash's music hit, and I was like, oh, into the- oh, it's Kevin Nash. Oh no. And then as as you said, Diggy, he gets hit with a low blow and screams, <laughs> which is great. He's like, ah! I thought I thought Norman Smiley come in and I thought, is someone going to get bummed? And they didn't. And that was when I finally settled on the fact that it's absolutely fucking awful. And I must say, I know that Flair has talked about how he felt at this time and how he got on with Bischoff and Russo and that. But regardless of how I feel about Ric Flair's like broader career, I think what I've seen of him, I think he's a little overrated, to be honest. But what a fucking disgraceful way to treat him. And also, to be honest, Dean Douglas as well, who should have stayed being a teacher in WWE. <laughs> because 
if it should have taught him something, it's don't go to WCW. Indeed. Tom? I, do you know what? I'm really not a fan of, of Shane Douglas at all. I, I think he's an absolute cunt. And the reason being is that months before, he's there willing to shit, shit on WCW and Ric Flair. But as soon as they give him the opportunity, he's like, oh, yes, sir. I'll come over. Oh, <laughs> pathetic. Um, there's one note that I've had, which I think you guys have covered everything really well. But there's one thing that is a bit odd about this match. So Shane Douglas pulls a little chain out of his pants, mm. which... Can you imagine, imagine like getting like the links of a chain caught in your pubes or something. If you are agonising to get them out, he gets them out, wraps them around his hand, punches Ric Flair in the bollocks, and then puts them back away again. Do you think that a, a punch to the bollocks with a chain on would be that much more painful than <laughs> a normal punch to the bollocks? And I think it would actually hurt your hand more as the puncher than it. Mm. Than, I think the the, diff, the 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 ratio of pain to your hand versus pain to the bollocks would not make it worth it. And that's why, that was what I thought about a lot. Through this <laughs> well, I, and I suppose the thing is, is that he is, he is punching Space Mountain as well. <laughs> that's true. Like, that, that, that's a good sturdy dick right there. So any other thoughts on the match other than the chain to the bollocks? <laughs> no, it's just crap. Well, the actual match was all right, I suppose. But I've already got an instant dislike of Shane Douglas. To the point where if I watch him as a match, I probably just don't enjoy it because I think about how much of a prick he probably is. And this is Ric Flair in, you know, slacks and a T-shirt, which I'm not interested in. Yeah, I don't know how that happens because, like, that obviously it's not even like later on we get Hogan and he's in kind of street clothes. But at least they feel like street clothes that someone might fight in. Whereas mm. Hogan, uh, Flair here is in, like, just normal clothes, effectively. And you're like, this isn't uh, an impromptu match. Like this has been booked. So no. why are you in just normal? Why aren't you? You haven't you got any cons- concept of that this is a match and therefore what you should ring where to the where where to the ring should be in some way acknowledging that fact. I think I know why. Obviously, we touched upon this at the start that I was going to get a little bit excited and perhaps ruin me pants. Right. That's what's happened with Ric Flair. <laughs> Space Mountain has erupted all over his trunks and he's turned them inside out to try and cover it up and he's gone i've already turned them inside out once so i'll have to do those away and then i'll have to wrestle probably commando which may explain why being punched in the knackers with a chain round your fist hurts a little bit more because his bollocks were hanging a little looser maybe it's just weird i don't really know why he's do why he's out there with just normal clothes on it's very odd and um yeah, I think the less said about it, the best, because at the end, it's just a real mess. We've got David Flair, Vince Russo, Daphne, Kevin Nash, everyone involved. Why David Flair has been resurrected into this storyline? Because David Flair was just really not a very valuable member of the WWE roster, was never skilled at all. Uh, it's all very strange. I'm glad you said that it was Daphne who came down because I didn't have a clue who they were. But I wonder, do you reckon Celeste wasn't available? <laughs> <laughs> I also I also didn't think I couldn't help but think to myself about Daphne Moon as well. Came all the way from Seattle to uh, <laughs> to to make the scene. Right. Next up, video package showing Vampiro and Sting's feud feud ahead of their match. They then have their match, which is only seven minutes long. One of the shortest on the show. In fact, I think it is the shortest on the show. And this one ends when Vampiro goes for a hurricane runner on Sting, but Sting hits a low blow and then powers him, power bombs him off the top. Uh, Sting hits Vampiro with a lead pipe, then hits the Stinger Splash and hits two Scorpion Death Drops for the win. Uh, As Sting leaves, 
he sees Vampiro getting back up and so hits him one more time with the pipe. Uh, old man. I'll be honest, this was awful. This was so bad. My note is, basically, they use weapons a lot. More low blows. There's a nice power bomb from the top that I enjoyed. But the abiding memory of the match is the crow, as Sting mm. does his entrance, mm. which I kind of thought, what's that crow doing in there? This doesn't seem like a place for a crow. It should be outside having a little fly around. As you said to you, when Sting leaves the ring and then comes back and hits Vampiro with what is allegedly a lead pipe across the face, I was just like, who's gained anything from any of this? And I realised no one. I think that is the issue, isn't it, here? And you're starting Mm. to see that we're now eight matches in. We've got two more matches left. And that question comes back to me over the course of the show is who's gaining anything from any of this apart from probably vince russo who's just finding it hilarious but it's just there's nobody getting anything out of it nobody looks heroic nobody improves their star power no one becomes a bigger deal than they were at the beginning of the show and uh this is kind of really becoming um apparent as we watch this one as well tom any thoughts on the match I thought the match was brilliant until the match started. <laughs> so I I really I actually really quite liked the build up, um, and I quite liked the entrances. Despite the crow, I I got a note again saying I feel quite bad for the crow, but I thought that like the build up looked quite cool, and I think the vampiro is really cool as well. I thought I thought he he's got a great look. He, the way they kind of done some of the things, admittedly, you know, the blood spot is very brood ish, but um, there was some some really cool stuff in the build up for it. And then as soon as the match started, I was like, oh, this is shit, isn't it? it as, as all Sting matches are, because he is shit. Um, I mean, I didn't I didn't hate the match from what they did in the ring. I thought it was fine. I just, my thing just comes back constantly to what are we supposed to get from it? That's, I think that's where I, I didn't mind the match. I didn't mind what they did, but they, sorry, carry on, Tom. Um, So there is a mention, old man, and take care, I don't know if you guys notice this, about a legacy. <laughs> Bizarre. So it's another legacy match, uh, but yeah, very anticlimactic finish with the two, with the two things. My my favourite thing after the uh, entrances had gone through is, is someone with a sign that says "Laxative Luca," which is <laughs> <just laughs> wonderful because he is the drizzling shits. Um, yes. So yeah, I just didn't. I, they, there was a potential to do something really quite interesting with them. They kept going on about how violent it was, and it yeah. wasn't really. You know, they just kept talking about the intensity. There wasn't really that much intensity. It was just a bit... What? <laughs> what was that noise again? Sorry, Tom. <laughs> uh, to your point with the, um, with the uh, violence as well, we'd seen some violence earlier in the show, and it was played off as cartoonish mm. and ended up with a man having pretend anal sex performed on him by two people. Like, you've already, like, belittled the violence, so yeah. you can't then do this. And I think, and I'm glad Tommy talked about how shit Sting is, because I think Vampiro is what Sting wishes he was. Because Vampiro is cool, and he's, his look's great. He, I no idea if he's any good wrestling, but I know that Sting isn't particularly good. And also, there's a big thing missing from Sting's repertoire in this match. Ah! he don't do it what's the fucking point in having him in the ring 
Um, so Vampiro, I don't know if he's any good either. And this is really strange because literally the day after I watched this show, I watched another show with Vampiro in it, um, which I'll get to later on. And um, he, I don't know that his match was the main event of that show, and it lasted about 15 minutes. Didn't do a thing in the entire match. He basically got beaten up for 13 minutes and then won the, the match. match at the end. Yes. And this is not uh, not that different to this match. I feel like Sting pretty much has most of the offense throughout the match. Vampiro doesn't seem to do anything. I'm wondering whether he's been trained as a pro wrestler or not, and whether it's just he has a decently cool gimmick and therefore seems to get away with just being put into pay-per-view and important matches with other people. I don't know. So the, my my main kind of knowledge of Vampiro is because I watched Lucha Underground, or at least I watched the, at least the first season of it. And he was um he was pretty good in in that as a role as a commentator and a mentor and he actually goes on to have a match I think in the season finale of Lucha Underground I can't remember who is who is against I think it might be with Pentagon Pentagon Junior in like a hardcore match and it's amazing it is such a great match um because it is it's a little bit like I guess in a way it's like the old Terry Funk Henry Custard you know storyline in that you know it's kind of like some old guy who can't really do much and they're just they're just relying entirely on on high spots and weapon stuff and pentagon jr obviously does pretty much most of the you know most of the matches in it but it was really good so i would highly recommend going that but again that's the only other match with him i think i've ever seen i got a feeling he just doesn't do any moves i think that's his entire gimmick doesn't actually wrestle at all fair play to him he's made a career out of doing nothing that is true so backstage, uh, we get an interview again with DDP and David Arquette this time. They're uh, interviewed by Mike Tenay, first we've seen of Tenay during the show. Um, Arquette says that he's scared, even though he looks good. Um, DDP tells him to stick to the plan um, and stay out of Jarrett's way. And if anybody else gets involved, they should climb to the top so that he's out of harm's way. There's also a bit in it where it's kind of re- revealed that uh, DDP's got a pet name for him and he calls him Monkey. <laughs> I didn't catch that bit. He does. Then we see Kevin Nash backstage walking around with purpose, but nothing else. He just walks around. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know what he's doing. Um, Mike Tanay then interviews Billy Kidman. Kidman says he can't lose the the coming match against Hulk Hogan, especially as Bischoff is the special guest referee for the match. There's then an advert for uh, people to send in their pay-per-view receipt to get a Bagwell pennant for their wall. Lovely. Which I'd be all over. Mm, Big time. (laughs) Before we come to Billy Kidman versus Hulk Hogan. Just a quick note on the uh, Kidman-Bischoff promo with old Mike Tanay. Old double duty Mike Tanay, as he's called, with his two little promos. Um, So Kidman says that he's going to prove that Hogan is anything but mortal, (laughs) which is uh, he's obviously not. He's obviously meant to say anything but immortal. And uh, Bischoff says... We're going to call it right down the middle of Hogan's yellow back, <laughs> which, having seen Hogan's back, it's not yellow at all. It is tanned to within an inch of its life. A quick note on the, on the uh, I, I put Buff Daddy pennant. No, Buff Daddy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so free, 52,000 pay-per-view buys worldwide. So, right, little question for you boys, a little poser. It's quite ironic, given what Lex Luger does in Buff Bagwell's match with him. Um, do you think that WCW, I mean, it's WCW we're talking about as well. Do you reckon that they predicted how many pay-per-view buys there would be and had the 
penance pre-made or do you think they waited to see how many people sent their bill through to then manufacture them? Basically, what I'm asking is, do you think there are a shit ton of buff Bagwell penance in a warehouse somewhere? And do you think we can get hold of them? Let me answer that question in multiple ways. So first of all, I think the question itself shows that maybe you are less cynical about wrestling promotions than you really should be. Because what actually happened here is that the Buff Bagwell pennant was just a piece of, of merch that they've obviously had lying around for, for months and months. No one's bloody bought any of them. So they've gone, sod it, we'll just give it away free with a pay oh, yeah. and make it look like <laughs> it's been it's given them some value. So in the first case, I don't think either of those scenarios are correct. But in the second case, I imagine there are still bloody loads of them lying around somewhere because mm. how many people do you really think sent in their receipt to re- to claim one of them while stocks last don't forget was was mentioned <laughs> during the advert i bet you stocks are still lasting even now it's it's sad because he deserves better buff he deserves a uh, foam something or other doesn't oh, he? A foam abs <laughs> <laughs> i'm just having a little look on ebay to see if you can get a buff bagwell pennant there's another you can but there is a uh, WCW Slam and Crunch wrestling figure of Buff Bagwell. And for some reason, he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> that is actually uh, a re- reference to the story in 1998. Well, it wasn't even a story. Basically, Rick Steiner had done a bulldog on him in a match. Obviously, you get him in the headlock position. And Bagwell's head had slipped out of the... The, the position and gone into the back of Steiner at the back of the at the end of the bulldog and he'd actually like severely injured his neck to the point where there was a concern he might not wrestle again but then when he was reintroduced onto WWE television they used that very real injury to introduce him in a very heelish kind of way so they brought him out on a on a wheelchair and then he he then exposed the fact that he didn't need the wheelchair and turned on Rick Steiner even though Steiner had kind of done this really kind of um, emotional apology to Bagwell in the weeks leading up to it. So it was all a bit, it was it was a bit kind of cheap. Bagwell's that, career was in, in jeopardy for a little bit. Yeah, that um, I get on board with that, got to be honest. That makes more sense than anything on this show, <laughs> which admittedly isn't saying much. Well, let's move into that show because we are now towards the end of it and we've got Hulk Hogan and Billy Kidman up next. Now, this one goes for about 13 minutes and... Again, it's got a little bit of a, well, I say a little bit. It's got an incredibly busy finish, which includes loads of interference from Bischoff as the referee. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to literally go straight to the end because I cannot I cannot bring myself to run down all of the kind of back and forth between Hogan, Bischoff and Kibben at this one. And, and also, of course, Horace Hogan is involved as well, which doesn't, yeah. doesn't help matters. So after a load of stuff has happened and Bischoff is going to been laid out by Hogan, um, Kidman then sets up a table uh, and puts Hogan on top of it. He goes for a splash from the top rope, but misses the splash and goes through the table himself. Horace Hogan then gets into the ring, grabs Eric Bischoff's hand, bearing in mind that Eric Bischoff is the referee. Hulk Hogan pins Kidman and Horace uh, has Bischoff's hand count the pin, even though Bischoff is unconscious. Who wants to go first? <laughs> oh, sorry, boys. I'll fucking die on myself for you two. Um, <clears throat> couple of notes. So, for a start, I've got no idea about this incarnation of Hulk Hogan. What is this? Like, so he's still kind of got, he's still got this kind of NWO-esque kind of biker-looking gear on, but I've got no idea what's happened to this, so I've, so I've never seen this. They keep referring to him as Terry Bollea, which is really strange as well, which I just didn't understand. Um, American Made, his song, is a bit of a banger, 
it's no real American, but it's a bit of a banger. And some bloke is so excited in the front row that he rips his shirt off. I don't know if you boys <laughs> noticed that. Which I think we can all get on board with. Um, who is Horace Hogan? This is nephew. Hulk Hogan's real life nephew. Really? So good to see that even though, you know, his star may have been on the wane slightly in terms of WCW, he's still really exercising his nepotism. It's lovely. Um, I'm assuming Brutus the Barber Beefcake was fucking somewhere else at this time. Um, Kidman, fair play to him, is bumping all over the shop for Hogan. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you what, Hulk Hogan has a fucking nightmare trying to set up chairs and get them into the ring, doesn't he? He, he, oh. he, he, can't, he The first time he gets two, he gets two, uh, two, um, two uh, tables out from underneath the ring. The first one gets out slides and easily. The second one has a little bit more difficulty. He then tries to assemble one chair, but the leg breaks. And he put he props up against the rope, sets up the other chair. Then later on in the match, he goes to get another a table, sorry. Then he goes to get another table from outside the ring. And gets in and gets caught in the ring apron. And the leg goes up and won't go underneath the ring. <laughs> it's amazing. But I, I, there was something I noticed in there. So at one point, Hulk Hogan hits Eric Bischoff with the chair. I think that that is the biggest pop in the entire night, which goes to show, which goes to show that he still got it. <laughs> Unlike all these other people, Hogan can still make people get invested in the match, regardless as to how stupid it is. And that's why he is uh, still there. <laughs> that's the only reason I can think of it. But it was just, I'm really, it's hard to kind of think of anything about this because I was talking when we did WrestleMania 19 about how much I love the match with Vince McMahon. And it's one of my favourite matches. And this one, if you look at it on paper, it's a bit of a schmozzy, stupid, over-the-top crap match. But it's just nowhere near as good. And what is the point in this match as well, other than the fact that Billy Kidman wants to beat him because he's Hulk Hogan, I guess? Well, let me let me try and fill in the gap, although I, I'm a bit sketchy myself on the details. But again, this goes to the fact that Vince Russo was obsessed, and probably still is, with the real-life stuff. So... In March, before Bischoff and, and Russo had come back, Hogan did some kind of interview somewhere on a, on a radio show, probably Bubba the Love Sponge, this radio show, I expect, where he referred to Billy Kidman in a kind of derogatory way, as if like saying that basically, I think he was using Kidman as an example of the kind of wrestlers WCW would never get over because they're too small or they're not good enough, basically. And when... Russo and Bischoff returned. It was obviously the brainwave of Vince Russo to, to seize upon that when, again, only a fraction of the audience watching the television programs would have known anything about that interview or would have heard the interview at the time. Let's not forget this wasn't inter- when the Internet was everybody was using it every single day. This was still a kind of niche thing that certain only certain people were using and even they weren't necessarily using it all the time and used it as the reason why Hogan and Kidman were in this feud because they've got the Millionaires Club and they've got the New Blood and Hogan's part of the Millionaires Club, Kidman's part of the New Blood. So that's why this feud became a feud, effectively. That's why the match is happening. Still didn't care about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I just thought I'd give you the uh, give you the context. It's, it's appreciated. As Tommy said, Kidman is bumping all over the shop, puts in a lovely little shift. Um, it's effectively Bischoff versus Hogan. That's effectively what it is. Bischoff looks a fucking stain in this. He doesn't look like he's having a very nice time in his life at this moment. Um, it's just not good. It's a, it's basically a beatdown of Kidman, and that's kind of all it is. And um, the main note I've got is that Horace Hogan looks a little bit like a poor man's Pep Guardiola, <laughs> and 
that was kind of enough to get me through. And as Tommy noted, I just had a great time watching Hogan with the tables, really. It's part of what they term a new WCW. That's what they say. And this is the first time, to my knowledge, that this is used on the show. And you've got Hogan beating a young up-and-coming guy. And this is the new WCW. And I just thought, if anything just encapsulates the mess that was WCW, that kind of did nicely. Well done, lads. I thought that you're right that Kibben bumps all over the place. Um, but this is where I was talking about motivation and the fact that certain people look motivated. I thought Hogan looked motivated during this match. Mm. I thought that for the first six, seven minutes when they weren't going into the endless spiral of low blows, table spots, Kidman getting beaten up, Bischoff interfering on his behalf or not counting on his behalf. So Hogan getting distracted by Bischoff, allowing Kidman to attack him and then repeat that cycle. Hogan looked like he was really trying. There was a, there was a few um, little exchanges with Kidman where he was keeping up with Kidman. Like he was, they were doing Kidman, almost Kidman paced wrestling and Hogan was doing his best to stay with him. And I, I thought he does like, obviously this is not a, an incarnation that anyone will remember for very long, but, I felt like there was a, a degree of motivation in, in this point. And maybe I was seeing something that wasn't there, but I really felt like Bischoff, uh, sorry, Hogan was really trying. And I'm wondering whether it is to do with the fact that Bischoff was obviously removed from WCW in September time. And at that point, it looked like Bischoff was done. And now Bischoff's been given this kind of route back in as part of the dream team, as we've spoken about with Vince Russo, as though that was kind of Hogan realizing that with WWE on fire at this point, and him not looking likely to be able to get a job necessary back in the old Fed, that he was, this might be my last chance to keep the money coming in, to keep you know my place in wrestling as an important guy. And so I'm going to I'm gonna work a little bit harder. And I, as I said, I just felt like he worked quite hard during this match with Kidman. That's not to say that they, did, they gave Kidman anything. You're absolutely right. He gets swatted away all the way through this match. But in this case, I don't actually have a problem with Hogan doing it because there's nothing... There's no reason for Hogan to believe or have any faith in the booking that if he does put Kidman over or even makes Kidman look his equal, that they'll follow through with it in any way. But there's nothing like they've not built Kidman up prior to this, really, in any way. He was working as a cruiserweight for the majority of his time before. And they've not like sudden like given him important key victories over over other important wrestlers. So why should Hogan? He's not going to benefit from it himself, but also Kidman's not going to benefit from it. Kidman wouldn't benefit from beating Hogan at this point anyway, because he's not been built up in any way. So all this does is devalue Hogan rather than make Kidman more important. And I think this is probably the reason why so many people got frustrated with WCW at this time, because there is a sense that there is an honest attempt to mix the older guys with the younger guys and that is one of the big problems that was happening through 99 and into 2000 early 2000 before Vince, before Vince Russo was involved and after Vince Russo was involved for that period was that they kept going back to Hogan versus Sting Hogan versus Flair Flair versus Sting Sid against those guys as well just constantly mixing those same old guys again and again and again and here there's a genuine attempt to mix the young guys with the old guys. So you've got Vampiro versus Sting and Flair versus Douglas and Hogan versus Kidman and Mr. Perfect against Sean Stasiak. You've reintroduced or you've introduced, sorry, Chuck Palumbo. And it's likely that he's going to get into a few with Lex Luger after this point. So there's an attempt to, to actually mix them. The problem is, is it's so impatient. There's no mm-hmm. attempt 
to make things mean anything prior to the matches and then come out of them with something meaningful afterwards. So what happens during the course of the show could fill about three or four months worth of stories and, and matches and shows. And as a consequence, and this counts even more after we talk about the main event, there's nothing to remember. There's nothing to latch on to. There's nothing to go, oh, wow, that that you know, that, that so-and-so looks amazing. I can't wait till we see him the next time. Mm. Because there's just too many things to grasp hold of. And I'll kind of go into that in a bit more detail later on when we talk about our show overall reviews. Um, after this match, we see in the parking lot, Vince Russo dragging Liz away and escaping in a car from the arena. I was just going to add that what Russo first does Okay. Is he tries to get onto the Millionaire Club's bus, <laughs> he does. where Luger is just stood. He's just stood on the bus, and all I could think was, how long has he been there for? <laughs> Obviously, he's posing. But also, at that point, isn't Elizabeth then returns to Luger, and then Vince Russo runs off and steals someone's car, and then Kevin Nash walks out with a beer. Yeah. <laughs> it's really slowly rather rather boring boring looking Kevin Nash with a beer in his hand clearly I wasn't paying as much attention as I thought I was because I didn't get any of that I just thought that Russo had run, dr- driven away with Liz in the car well, you, yeah. were, you were too too looking forward to watching uh, watching Jeff Jarrett weren't you that's it that's what it was because next up we have the video package building to that main event and shows how David Arquette wins the WCW title now the reason they did this obviously was because they were trying to drum up some publicity for the ready to rumble movie that WCW had made and released in early April of the same year I'm I'm pretty certain that not only did it get panned by the critics but was not a commercial success either and that's why they felt the need to do this but it was Vince Russo's, apparently Vince Russo's idea to put the belt on to David Arquette. And apparently David Arquette himself didn't like the idea and felt like it would be a mistake. David Arquette, being a long, apparently long-time wrestling fan, felt that it would make a mockery of the WCW world title, which I guess you could definitely argue it did. I've got a little point on Ready to Rumble. I'm okay. glad you brought this up because I, I like, so it did, uh, it did flop, unfortunately. <laughs> But it features a uh, the media debut of what can only be described as now a global icon in John Cena, who is an extra in the back of a scene in a gym. So without Ready to Rumble, there might be no hustle, loyalty and respect, which would mean that there'd be no legacy which means we wouldn't have had to watch that utter shit at WrestleMania 30. <laughs> um, backstage, Gene Oakland interviews Jeff Jarrett. Um, he calls Oakland a geriatric slap-ass, which is probably the funniest <laughs> bit of the entire show, in fairness. I, I had to give him credit for that. I was like, you know what? Fair play. That's funny. <laughs> and he says he's going to win the WC title once more. Um, I think that Jeff Jarrett, the best thing Jeff Jarrett has ever done in his career, apart from that, <laughs> it's his t-shirt that says listen up slap nuts on it yeah. which yes. i which i want <laughs> so slap nuts was his name for the crowd he would call the crowd slap nuts and <laughs> why? i don't know why but that's what he did and he would call his is is kind of rival slap nuts as well so it was kind of a, an insult so he was he was loving the word slap just generally yeah. jeff Jarrett yeah. was getting an absolute mile out of the word slap and you know what? It's probably the best thing he's done in his career. So do not knock it. All right. So then we get 
the main event. David Arquette going in as WWE World Champion. Let's hang on before we do the main event. Hang on, let's say. Hang on a minute. Let's talk about David Arquette as WWE Champion because I think that's quite a big talking point. Let's be mm. honest, and we're not going to be in a position where we need to talk about it again. I should imagine. So, any thoughts on David Arquette winning the World Championship? The problem comes, I think, with how it was used. And my only experience of how it was used is this pay-per-view and this main event. The the problem that you have when you give a title to someone who is a non-wrestler is you then have to take it off of them. And it's how you take it off of them, which I think is always its legacy. And having watched this, they probably did all they could to get it off of him in the most sensible way that they could. I think also it's... um. It's an easy stick to hit them with, isn't it? Like, I think, oh, they are David Arquette is champion. It is absolute bollocks. Like I said, it doesn't really matter. And it lasted, what did it last, a month? Not even that, like a week or two. Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's such a small part of history. And it also kind of detracts from the problems that we've kind of laid out in this show, in that there's kind of no direction with anything. There's no reason for anything to happen. And... At least Arquette got the title because they were promoting a film and then they got to take it off of him and they got some eyes on the products from outside. I think it's absolutely fine. He's no, he's no Val Venus, but who is? <laughs> Tom? It's just a bit of a weird one, isn't it? I think it's the I think the problem with it is that it, it reeks of desperation, you know, desperately trying to do anything to... to to, to get attention and when it's like they say about a wounded animal don't they a wounded animal is the most dangerous i don't know if they say that but i just have but like <laughs> but but it's, it's the fact that they're, they're so badly trying to do anything and see if anything will stick and see if anything will work and it just comes off as badly i don't think ultimately the legacy of the wcw title is 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 too badly damaged but that being said i've never given a shit about the wcw title so it wouldn't be damaged to me by some winning it what I think it is bad though is that as no one's going to take it seriously, have him as have him as a heel, have him side with Jarrett. That makes more sense to me. Have him coming into the match because what you're effectively going into is a handicap match where there are two baby faces against one heel. So surely it would make more sense to have him as an obnoxious, cowardly kind of guy, and then have it like that. I guess. Yeah. So for me, the problem first and first and foremost, the problem with this is that. The reason people thought it sullied the WWE world title, other than the obvious, is just that the WWE title in the past, as we saw at Spring Stampede 94, has been it's been treated up to this point probably more seriously than the WWE title had been. It, I think this is a story that might have that would have worked, would have been more, would have fitted better on WWE television than it does on WWE television for that for that fact that the historically WCW were the wrestling show as we kind of established with Spring Stampede 94. Um, and it's a, another kind of example for me of classically how Vince Russo not only in my view doesn't really understand how to book a wrestling show despite having done it quite a lot in his career but also doesn't understand WCW. And that is the problem here is that he's never cottoned onto the fact that what the fans of WCW wanted was something different to what WWE did not the same but worse. And that's what he made in WCW was something that did effectively what WWE is doing, but did it in a worse way. And nobody wanted that. People wanted WCW to be that alternative. They wanted him to continue to be, where possible, the wrestling show. And Vince Russo just never understood that. And I think 
that's perhaps the biggest problem here is that David Arquette winning the title really moves them away from what WCW had traditionally been, which people were looking for from them because WWE weren't doing it at the time. I think they can get away with David Arquette winning the title in the way that they do have him win it. I think he pins Eric Bischoff in a tag team match where the title is on the line. So I think they kind of get away with it. It's not like Arquette pinned DDP or Jeff Jarrett to win the title. Um, but I think that's where the problem lies. And I think a bigger problem ultimately is where later in the year, Vince Russo would book himself to win the WCW world title. So he kind of throughout, and, and that's also another thing to bear in mind. I'm looking through the title history right now of the WCW title. This title changes hands about 20 times during 2000. This is the main title. The main championship WWE wrestlers are wrestling for. The main reason for any of this to actually happen is the WWE title. And it changes hands a ridiculous amount of times. I told you a few weeks ago about Jeff Jarrett's kind of multi-time championship in WWE. Four of them come in this period. Four-time champion Jeff Jarrett becomes within about three or four months. So really, David Arquette's winning the title is more a broader indication of Vince Russo's attitude towards the title as opposed to it in itself being a singular reason why wcw ended up dying yeah going back to the title changes so it's my turn for the game this week and you've just fucking ruined that tinky (laughs) Uh, yeah so 19 title changes it was vacated three times there are 10 different holders so you've got chris benoit sid vicious kevin nash Jeff Jarrett, DDP, David Arquette, Ric Flair, Booker T, Vince Russo, Scott Steiner. Booker T wins it at Bash of the Beach, which I believe is in July. He then holds it four times before the end of the year. Yeah. Which really made me think about Booker T. And like, obviously, he's like the five-time champion. I was just like, wow, he really didn't... Uh, have- that was a very condensed period that he won those four titles. And to be honest, I wish I never knew because I was like the five time thing. And I was like, you're a scum. <laughs> the match itself is a ready to rumble cage match. It's a triple yes. decker cage ripped directly from the film, um, which is what they end that film with. The three cages. First of all, the bottom tier is just a normal cage, but it does um, go over the top of the ring in the same way as a hell in a cell does. There is a roof on top of that. And then there's a second cage, a bit smaller on top of that, which is filled with weapons. And it's called the hardcore cage. And then there is a hardcore hell, hardcore hell cage. Sorry. And then there is a third cage on top of that, which has got, which is called the guitar cage, which has just got a load of guitars in. So that's, that's the match itself. The match is for the title. David Arquette goes in as champion. Let's give you the rundown of the end. So, here it goes. Yes, I know. Settle in. Yeah. DDP and Jarrett are fighting on the sec- on the roof of the second cage. No, roof of the first cage, sorry. They're inside the second cage, and then they're fighting on the roof of the first cage. This is, this is why it gets really complicated. They, As they're doing so, the wall of that cage, of the, of the cage, one of the walls collapses, which looks quite, quite dangerous. Meanwhile, David Arquette starts to make his way up the cages and climbs to the very top. Awesome then arrives on the scene. Out of nowhere, bear in mind that they're on top of the, the, the first of the cages. And Awesome just suddenly, from the side of the camera, arrives <laughs> to interview. Um, he attacks DDP. Then we get... Uh, meanwhile... <laughs> <laughs> it's, I've, I've, fucking, it's a fucking sham, isn't it? 
Meanwhile, Arquette reaches the top of the third cage. DDP managed a diamond cutter on awesome. Um, DDP and Jarrett then start climbing and enter the guitar room. Jarrett misses a couple of guitar shots and then DDP passes a guitar to Arquette but gets low blowed by Jarrett. Arquette, meanwhile, is above them on top of the third cage whilst they, the two of them are in, are in the third cage. Seemingly protecting the belt to allow Darwin Dallas Page to win. Arquette then, uh, just as they both start to climb up towards the belt, which is hanging from the top of the ceiling above the top of the third cage, um, Arcade, uh, Arcade, Arquette then hits a DDP. He, Arquette then hits DDP with the guitar, turning on him in the process, and Jarrett gets the title and wins. After the match, Mike Awesome attacks Page. Canyon then arrives to make the save again, out of the side of the camera, even though we are on top of the cage. And uh, and then Awesome uh, uh, and he have a little battle after which Awesome throws Canyon off the cage onto the entrance ramp, ramp at the bottom to end the show. A breathless end to the show. I think you'll both agree, Tom. Do you want to start going through that? <laughs> well, that's one word I'd use to describe it. So this is something I actually noticed at this point. This is a main event. This is what the entire pay-per-view has been building towards. There is something, there's been something that always bothers me about WCW pay-per-views, and I can't, I've never been able to figure out what it was, and I figured out what it is in this one. When it comes to the entrance music, they fade directly into the next one. There's no time for any... There's usually a little bit of a pause, isn't there, between one wrestler's entrance starting and one beginning in WWE. But it just fades, so everyone... It just feels like one long entrance. It's really weird. That's something I noticed at this point. The structure in itself is pretty impressive, despite the fact it's crap. The concept is rubbish, but it looks pretty impressive. What I could, did quite like about it is that rather than, you know, do it, rather than lowering the cage whilst all that other shit happens in the background oh. with Russo and the things, we're actually there watching the cage be lowered for about <laughs> two minutes whilst nothing else is happening. And Michael Buffer is in the ring and then all of a sudden realises that he probably shouldn't be in there and scuffers <laughs> and gets down to the side. And I will say that match... It's not great, but I was genuinely shocked when the wall of the hardcore hell cage goes down. Mm-hmm. That's such a dangerous spot. And then they're fighting on top of the first cage around the hardcore hell cage. And there's not that much room between the cage and just falling off of it, between the second cage and the edge of the first cage. And I was a bit like, oh, fuck me, this is a bit, this is a bit much. And that's about what I've got <laughs> up until Michael's. <laughs> Until Mike Wilson comes down, as you said, out of nowhere. And do you know what I thought? I thought, you know what, he is bloody awesome. If he's managed to sneak up the side of that cage and not notice it. Um, but it's just a mess. Like, the idea of the hardcore cage and then the guitar cage is <laughs> so fucking stupid that I just don't understand why anybody would ever think that would be a good idea. The guitars in particular, look, I know everyone, they have to work with loaded, you know, worked guitars and stuff but the guitars look particularly flimsy in this in this instance as do all of the weapons up there as well it's just absolute shit what also annoys me is that the fact that wcw have always had from the cut from the things that we've seen so the slam the the, um spring stampede and we'll go back to the um the class of champions that we watched they're always very holier than thou about the fact that, that this is real wrestling and then they get then they start presenting this shit to us as well and i think you know what you deserve this for being smug <laughs> and being rubbish and letting a fucking talentless hack like vince russo book your wrestling shows there you go i said it so fuck vince russo and bollocks to this and this match is rubbish nice i think so i was watching it i looked at old jeff looked at old double j and double dp 
Double DP. Yeah. <laughs> Why isn't anyone calling that? <laughs> and uh, I thought these guys, if you tied their hands behind their backs and then tied one of their legs up with their hands so that they're basically hopping around on one leg and then said, can you go and swim across the ocean? They would have probably been less hamstrung than they are by this horrible situation that they're in because they can do nothing. David Arquette is in there and he does a magnificent job of staying out of the way. I thought fair play to him. Like he stays out of the way. There's also oddly, there's a referee in the ring at the start. And I was like, where's the ref there? What's he doing? He doesn't need to be in there because there's no pinfalls. And then obviously when they go up the levels, I'm guessing the rest just stood there holding his dick or something. It's a very difficult thing to do in these type of matches. And I think when you have, with the greatest respect to both of them, well, actually all three, to be honest, the crowd do not care about any of them, unfortunately. And like I've seen a little bit of DDP. He's always been quite a big fan favourite in WCW when I've seen him in particular when he became like world champion. And the reaction that he gets is a bit like, oh, I was a bit like, oh, we might be in trouble here. I mean, the greatest entrance of the show is given to the cage. As Tom says, there's pyro, there's some music playing. It's bloody, it's wonderful. What a time. But you've got the match. They, like I said, they put an absolute fucking shift in. Fair play to them. You get the screwy finish. So, right, we've got the heats on Jarrett. That's what you want. You've got your heel champion who's just been aided by David Arquette, who is a actor that was world champion. You've got DDP, who is the face. He's been screwed. Screwed by his mate. He's having a terrible time. But it's all right, because Mike Wilson and Canyon are here to take that completely away, to literally just whip it away by Canyon being thrown off the thing onto the stage, which, one, an absolutely stupid spot to do if it's for anything. But the fact that they do that and then they immediately go off air and there's no reason for it, it's just, why are you doing it? And then you realise that it's because they probably realise that having... Jeff Jarrett stood as world champion on the top of a three-story cage. Wasn't a good visual for the end of the show, when in actual fact it would be an incredible visual for the end of the show, because you've got a guy stood 42 feet in the air, as they keep saying, 42 feet in the air, with David Arquette, not a massive superstar by any means, but a Hollywood star, stood there, arms aloft, world championship in hand, DDP looking up, I've been fucked over. That's all you want. That's all you want when they've put this shift in. But then Awesome and Canyon come down. Obviously, it's not their fucking fault. But then they have their bit and you just whip it away. And then you realise what we said through the whole show, it doesn't mean anything. That little move, well, not a little move, especially not for poor Canyon who took it. But the act of Canyon being thrown off the cage just took everything away. The whole idea is two hours and 52 minutes, this pay-per-view. Everything is whipped away by that moment. And it was done. I, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said there, old man. Obviously, Jeff Jarrett and DDP have got no chance. This is uh, They do their best. They work hard. They put in the effort. 
David Arquette, I think the spots with David Arquette worked really well. Like he gets involved a little bit at the start and he gets hit by DDP a couple of times by accident. And I think that bit will work really well. And then for the main, David Arquette stays out of the way. The two of them wrestles, you know, do the best they can. But they are hamstrung by the fact they've got this ridiculous structure in place, the like of which we've not seen in pro wrestling before and appears to be the only reason it appears to exist is, first of all, to promote uh, um, the Ready to Rumble film, but also to go one better than WWE. So it looks a bit better than a Hell in a Cell, um, which ain't no reason to have a match, quite frankly. And you're right. They, they then they have Jeff Jarrett win. So what am I supposed to take from the main event? Is it like Jeff Jarrett's the new world champion? Is it that David Arquette's turned on his mate DDP? Is it that Mike Awesome's nearly killed Canyon? Like, what is it that I'm supposed to take from this match? And also, if I'm supposed to take all three of those things and remember them and think, right, that's the, that's the, those are the bullet points. And I've talked about this before, the idea that there's bullet points you want out of a show, two or three of them that you want people to be taking away, remembering that will feed into their continued viewing and their, the value of the wrestlers that have taken place. So if those are the things, then do you not want us to remember the fact that Shane Douglas has beaten Ric Flair and got a big career-enhancing victory for him? Do you not want us to remember that Sean Stasiak defeated Kurt Hennig and got a big, supposedly, um, victory for him? Do you not want us to remember all the bumps and the nastiness that Terry Funk, Funk took in the second match of the night? Do you not want us to remember any of those things that have already come, along with all the other bits and pieces that took place, all of the outside interference, the low blows, the chair shots, the tables, everything else you've jumped in, lumped into this big old show apparently not what they want us to remember is the michaels from throwing canyon off the top of the cell and forget everything else and it just it's just a lack of patience and as i said it, you could fill four or five months worth of shows with the stuff that takes place on this mm. and it's just a just a lack of patience and i i think that's the problem for me like there are there are signs that that what people say about vince russo during his time in wwe is right he booked all of the shows and all of the um stuff that took place on those shows and Vince Russo says himself that the one thing that Vince McMahon cared about ever was Steve Austin the Rock and Undertaker so he used to write up Vince Russo used to write up the whole show and then Vince McMahon would come in and say right what's Austin doing they talk through what Austin was doing and he'd tweak things here and there what's the Rock doing they do the same thing what's the Undertaker doing do the same thing and then the rest he wouldn't care about and that's and that's because Vince McMahon knew that he had to value at least the main event attractions in order to keep people buying the shows. Because if you demote them in the same way as Hogan, for example, has been demoted during the show, the same way Sting, Ric Flair dressing in his clothes has been demoted, then not only do they not have any value, but they can't give value to anybody else. Mm. And so that's why Vince McMahon needed to talk about those ones because he didn't really care about the rest of the roster. They can, you can see it now. The rest of the roster just don't do anything. Like he only really cares about the main event and that's all he's ever cared about. But he understood at the very least that you have to sell the shows on something that, that people take seriously. And that's the problem here is that nothing is taken seriously. Everything's lumped in together. It's all one big mulch of nothingness. And by the end, you're like, well, who who comes across as good, embettered by this? Or even, I would say, as I said, that Hogan, Flair, Sting, they have been, um, their overall aura has been reduced by this show. And that, therefore, means that the whole thing has a negative impact on WCW's business. The other thing about David Arquette, I think, old man, you suggested that it would bring eyes to the product. I don't think it did bring anyone's, anyone's eyes to the product. I mean, you said itself, it sold, what, 50,000 pay-per-view buys? That was yeah. a lot lower than what WWE pay-per-view buys had been in the middle of the 19th of the previous year and much, much slower than they had been the previous year before that miles, miles down on what WWE were doing in terms of numbers as well. So 
I'm not sure it did bring any new eyes to the product. No, he's no Bad Bunny, is he, David Arquette? <laughs> <laughs> but even then, like, notice the way they booked Bad Bunny in the mm. ring with Miz and Morrison. Like, we've spoke about them pre last week, Miz in particular, sort of the fact that you could do without you Teflon, you could do anything you want with him. Mm. No one's expecting him to sell massive amounts of pay-per-views in the future in fact no one sells pay-per-views anymore but you know he's not they're not relying on him to do the business they are relying on jeff jarrett who's the world champion and ddp who's their top baby face at the time to do the business okay so i've kind of already given my overview on the show my overall thoughts so I'll, what i'll do is i'll ally that to a rating and a match of the night uh breaking with tradition um my match tonight is mike Orson versus chris canyon i thought it was the best match of the night and i think had it not gone to a no contest if they just had a clean finish at the end of all that i would be putting that on my list of list of matches to recommend to people to watch because it is a, i think it is a good match um overall i'm giving the show three out of ten and that's because it doesn't accomplish anything the idea that it's there's always something happening, which is the other thing Vince Russo likes to talk about, is that there's always something happening on his shows. The idea that that doesn't make it boring is wrong. If this was a film, it would be an explosion, a load of explosions, then a car chase, then a sex scene, then another car chase, then another explosions, then another car chase, then another sex scene, and probably an atomic bomb at the end of it with the Michael some Canyon thing off the top of the, the, the cage. And you'd be deathly bored in the middle of that. And I was really really bored through the middle section of the show the lex luger versus bagwell through to probably the end of the sting vampira match i thought were just quite boring because they're just throwing everything out and you like your senses can only take so much before you check out there were some there was some okay wrestling on it here and there uh and that was not really aided by any of the booking it was entirely on the wrestlers themselves that did that and uh yeah so i give it a three out of ten um tom your thoughts on the show overall I don't. I wouldn't say I disagree with you, Tinky. I wasn't bored at all at any point during this show, but I think that was mainly because I was quite confused during a lot of it, and I was trying to make sense of all the nonsense and and the bullshit that goes on within this show, rather than do let me rather. So, like for example, we've spoken before that I found at parts I found Spring Stampede quite boring. I found Fastlane 2017 incredibly boring and really struggled watching it. I didn't find this boring, but it doesn't mean that it was good or that I particularly enjoyed it. I'm giving this a three as well. And my match of the night is Sting versus Vampiro up until the match starts. (laughs) So I'm giving it like a segment of the night or a section of the pay-per-view of the night because trying to pick the best match out of here is a real struggle and I just came out of that started watching that match and thought do you know what at least I think something about it is cool and that is Vampiro so that is my match of the night oh man kind of kind of somewhere in between you two but not in a not in a good way because like Tom I wasn't I think there was one bit where I was bored I watched it all in one go and there was one bit where I really thought I was like fuck no this is getting a bit a bit exhausting but then the absolute tripe that is the Lex Luger stuff happened. And that piqued my interest, or not for the reasons that they wanted it to, but because <laughs> it was so nonsensical as we went through earlier. I mean, it's lousy. It's lousy. It's lazy. It's as we touched upon with the main event. I'm giving it a two out of ten. It was going to get a three, but because of Canyon taking poor Canyon taking that bump at the end because that solidified what I was thinking the whole way through is that it doesn't mean anything. Nothing means anything. There's no, 
There's no forward motion. There's no there's no reason to tune into Nitro the next night. There was nothing, none of that, which in the time that this was, and especially now, that's the whole point of it, is that you want people to watch your next show. You want people to, like, people have paid money for this. Like, have a bit of fucking respect as well. Like, that was kind of where I got. I was like, people have, in America, I think they probably paid $50 for this. And it's like, yeah, have a bit of fucking respect. Like, give people something that, like you said, Tinky, that you can kind of step back and you're talking to your mates 21 years later and you're like, oh, do you remember when we watched uh, Slamboree 2000? It's like, oh, yeah, it, it was a bit pants, wasn't it? But X happened, Y happened. Oh, yeah, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah. Whereas now, my main memory of this pay-per-view, because of Kanye getting thrown off, is going to be Lex Luger's lack of urgency in trying to protect his kidnapped lady. And I don't know, but I don't think that was their idea. And my match tonight is also, is also Mike Awesome and Christopher Canyon, or Champagne Canyon, because I thought uh, it bobbled along nicely until the absolute turd at the end. But yeah, they, they put a shift in. And I will say this about many of the people on this card. I always feel a little bit bad when I absolutely tear something to shreds because apart from Lex Luger, everyone put an absolute shift in, I thought. And as we said before, the crowd get my utmost respect because I couldn't even fathom how drunk I would have got at this show because (laughs) I think it would have been, the matches were quite short. I would have probably set a target of a pint every other match. So I'd have had five. I'd have probably had a couple beforehand as well. By the end of it, I'd have shit myself. <laughs> as usual. So, I mean, interesting you put up the point about, like, people have paid for this and put, put you know, give them something. I don't think there was anything... I thought everything was done in good faith. And this is kind of where I... I don't want to dump on Vince Russo too much because I feel like he thinks this is good. That's the thing. I think he really believes. And I think he probably worked really hard to figure out what he was going to do with all these matches and all these segments. Like... He's not, again, if you compare it to what was happening with WSW between January and March of this year, where almost nothing was happening. Like, literally, they were diff- struggling to, like, you'd struggle to even think about what storylines, had you been watching it, what storylines had been furthered during that period. Um, he is doing the opposite of that. He is doing everything he can to fill everything with something. And in his mind, that is good. So I think the problem for me is not that, and I agree with you, all the wrestlers are working really hard. So I think that everybody is trying to put a shift in to try and make this as good as they can. I just think in the case of the person who's ultimately got control over the creative on this show, he doesn't know what he's doing. And that is ultimately the problem is that he thinks this is good and it is not good. It doesn't enable you to do anything else uh, afterwards because you've done everything. Yeah, that's it as well, isn't it? It's like there's no, um, like, as I said about you want a reason to tune in on Monday or like whenever the next show is for any any pay-per-view or any weekly show as well. You want a reason. And I mean, blimey, I know like the people who listen regularly will know that I in particular am a WWF guy, but God knows they're guilty of it as well. But it feels like such a waste of some decent people. And like you said to you as well, there's no patience. So you're getting these payoffs of sort that don't mean anything because there's a lot of them. And the minute you have more than two on a show that are complete payoffs 
well, payoffs in inverted commas, you've had you've had your fill and you can't take any more. Yeah. We just want some development. They've just burned through everything is ultimately what I'm yeah. saying. They've burned through, as I say, about four or five months worth of story and matches that could have been used in a much more effective way over the course of time. And that's just the way Vince Russo likes to do things. And also just another quick note as well, like the people who lose on this, like we, um, I meant to mention this when we were talking about uh, Kidman and Hogan, but you touched upon it, Tinky. No one who loses any of these matches comes out of it with any credit. They aren't able to use, Kidman can't, use the fact as you said Tiki can't use the fact that he's had a ma- a pay-per-view match with Hulk Hogan for anything because it's booked in such a way that it didn't mean anything well worse than that though old man is that nobody wins any of the matches comes out with anything yeah that's the thing because they've not set anybody up to no, nothing matters so it doesn't matter who wins any of the matches because like Hogan didn't get anything from being Kidman and nobody would have gained anything from him trying putting Kevin over either. So there's no way he's going to do it. So, yeah, there's just no value coming out of it. Right. Let's move on to the game. But before we go there, I need to point you in the direction of a couple of things. First of all, don't forget that we always appreciate a review and or a rating on your podcasting application of choice. Um, a big part of our motivation to continue to make these shows is knowing that people are out there enjoying what we do. So we always appreciate those reviews. Secondly, I've got a plug for another podcast. So I recently appeared on the True Penny show uh, where I talked with James True Penny about Mexican promotion CMML's Super Viernes program. Do you know what Super Viernes means, Tom? Spanish? No, I don't. It's Super Friday, apparently. Oh, right, yeah. Um, I may have been pronouncing it wrong, so it's probably my my fault. Um, a program that their their weekly show, and this one's from July of 1992. Um, we discussed the show in full. I said it was it featured a main event of Vampiro Canadiense or Canadian Vampiro mm. against Pirata Morgan or Morgan the Pirate. Uh, that is the main event of the show. It's a, it's a hair versus hair match. So we, we discussed that on that show. Uh, it was a couple of weeks ago now, I think it will be out. And um, James's show is a, probably about the best podcast out there for non-American wrestling coverage. So I definitely encourage you to check it out. They go quite deep into the Japanese and Mexican stuff over there, particularly the Japanese wrestling. So, yeah, give that give that a listen. I uh, appeared on the uh, show about CML Super Viernes program. So, yeah, the game. And I believe, old man, we've already stolen your thunder. Uh, not to make the pun of the fact that we've just been talking about WCW and their thunder. Okay. Um, so I don't know what we're going to do, old man. Well, it's been hastily cobbled together. Excellent. And you know what? I thought we've watched this. We've suffered it. So let's go back to a happier time. Mm. So at WrestleMania 17, there was a gimmick battle royal. <laughs> so we'd like the entrance now. I think. Once you boys get on a roll, you may complete this. So I do have a tiebreaker in that eventuality. See, I'm a fucking pro of it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Like, this is going to be. This, this is going to be tough. This is going to be fucking hard. Oh, actually, there can't be a draw because there's 19. Okay. Well, who do you want to go first? Oh, man. I'll go with Tom. Okay. Uh, Brother Love. Correct. The Gobbledygooker. Correct. Tugboat. Correct. Uh, Duke the Dumpster Drusy. Correct. I'm going to go with Repo Man. Correct. Our boy the Repo Man. Uh, Sergeant Slaughter. Correct. Uh, I'm going to go with Doik. Full name. The Clown. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Iron Sheik. Fuck. Correct. Who obviously won it because he couldn't take the bump. Indeed. All right, that was my last one. That was you taking Sheiky Baby from me. I am going to go with Bobby Heaton on commentary. <laughs> you know what? You can have that, and that will take it to an even twenty. Uh, mean Gene Oakland on commentary. Oh, Tinky, <laughs> correct. <sighs> oh, oh, God. Now, come on. Um, okay, Tom, let's stop fucking about now. Let's sink you. Let's sink you. IRS. Unfortunately, not. You know, that is why no. I don't remember all the participants because he wouldn't. Yeah, have, he, he wouldn't have. So. He wouldn't have lowered himself to that anyway. So I got a few more. Um, yeah. The goon. Yeah. Uh, Jim Cornette. Yeah. Now I think Kamala is in it. Correct. And that means probably kimchi is in it as well. Yeah. And that is where I am out. So the ones you've missed: uh, Bushwhacker Luke. Um, Bushwhacker Butch, Nikolai Volkov, Earthquake, who at this point would have probably been about 23, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hillbilly Jim, Michael Hayes, oh yeah, and One Man Gang. <laughs> one Man Gang, what a hero! What yeah. a hero! I tell you what, let's do the tiebreaker. So Tinky's one, obviously, but the tiebreaker was going to be the length of the match. So we'll go Tinky first. What's your guess? I'm going to go six and a half minutes. Tom? I was going to go eight minutes and 34 seconds. <laughs> You'll be very surprised. Three minutes and five seconds. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think it takes Iron Sheik about that long to walk down the ramp. Yeah, because they all have their entrances, don't they? And it takes ages. That's what it's about, isn't it? Because you don't know who's yeah. coming. So it's all about kind of you know the entrances okay yeah. cool well very good very good another lovely game in the books there um sorry about uh, ruining it halfway through, halfway through the podcast old man and meaning we had to change uh, course hey to be honest it just shows that we're fucking professionals okay that is, just wraps about every single thing up i'm sure everyone will be relieved to say that that is the end of the show old man thank you for joining me today thank you very much uh as i predicted at the start of the show I do feel like a child that's been approached by Mr. Bobby at a children's party and had a cake wrapped in my face. So I'm going to go off and have a little cuddle with my teddy. (laughs) Uh, Rather than think of that, all I want the listener to do is to remember Kemp Patera. (laughs) (laughs) And Tom, thank you for your contributions as well. I'm going to go off and fucking shower this show off of me now. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably for the best. I, I imagine all of our listeners will be doing the same. We will be back again next week. If you can possibly be bared to face face us one more time. Bear to face us like a teddy bear. <laughs> oh, Jesus. But until then, take care. <laughs>